Welcome to the first ever episode 11 of our podcast, Fintech Insider. My name is David Breer, and as always, I'm coming to you live from London in the heart of Fintech up here in Level 39. I'm joined by my colleague at 11FS, Jason Bates, with Simon Taylor and Chris Skinner, unfortunately otherwise occupied tonight. We have a huge show coming up for you today talking about innovating in banks and the various different approaches of making that actually happen. To discuss this topic, we've got some huge guests for you. Mario Belinki and Pascal Bouvier joining us for the news, but also to talk about what they're up to with Santander's Innovation Fund. We've also got Shamir Kakal, who is the former CEO of Simple Bank and also now head of APIs at BBVA. If that wasn't a big enough show for you, we've got an incredibly entertaining interview with Neil Cross, who is the CIO of DBS Bank and recently been crowned the most innovative CIO in the planet. Pretty impressive title right there, Neil. Before we get started, though, over the last few weeks, I've given you a a bit of an update on on how Fintech Insider is performing. Since last week, we've been downloaded in a further 12 countries, bringing our total up to 82 countries that Fintech Insider has been listened to, many of which I'm told now that we're up in the top five business podcasts on iTunes, which is just amazing for a, a, a podcast that didn't exist until absolutely recently ago. Really appreciate all of your support. Please keep the five-star reviews coming in and we'll keep giving you guys shout-outs. Right, let's get into it with what's been happening in the news this week. Awesome. Well, thank you very much and we'll get into it with the news. Um, we have got a awesome set of guests for you today. Uh, we have Anna Herrera. Say hello, Anna. Hello. We have Mario Belinki, and I'm really good at mispronouncing people's names, but how was that, Mariano? Much better, thank you. Good. And we've got Pascal Bouvier. Hello. Fantastic. If we get into it then, we've got a, uh, an interesting one and probably the biggest thing that's, that's happened this week. We've got Wells Fargo seeks to shore up reputation in the wake of a scandal kind of a big scandal as it goes in terms of what they've been doing as well so we've seen what was it 5,300 people be fired for basically making up 2 million bank accounts seems like a bit of a problem in the banks yeah <laughs> gonna, yeah I, I guess it's, it's a serious issue one of the issues I think that's worth highlighting is the fact that one of the executives that was in sort of in charge had retired before and she wasn't even fired. She just retired and she retired with loads of money. So I guess this shows what issues remain within banks. And even though after the crisis, people have been really focusing on culture and making improving culture at banks, it's has it really changed? Yeah. But this isn't just sort of one person making a <laughs> yeah. little, you know, doing that's something. Why it's, that's it's why it's a culture thing. territory, maybe, yeah. is it, with, when... Five and a half thousand people, you know, are, are making up two million accounts. Well, they state here it's two percent of the staff of Wells Fargo have been fired as part of this uh, this scandal, which is quite terrifying. And and as you say, this lady left with nine million dollars in in cash bonus. Um, it's just yeah, quite I think the bizarre. Overall, the overall the overall package that she's taking home is uh, significantly more than that number. Amazing. So, uh, do you think that people actually knew that what they were doing was properly? Wrong, like yes, there's so it was, many it people. Yes, it was internally called sandbagging. Okay, so there's no. So there doubt. was an actual name for okay. the practice of doing this. That's well, as, as usual, I think, especially for stories of that magnitude. It is only the beginning. Hmm. It is not the end. We have the CFPB that have leaned in, that has leaned in and uh, levied a fine. But you know, market structure in the United States uh, is light on regulators and heavy on uh, on the law. 
and um, especially tort law. So I, I think that we're going to have a second, a third, and a fourth chapter in this uh, in this story, with probably the feds as well as uh, the, uh, state uh, intervention, both from a public and a private uh, perspective. Think about uh, of the two million fake accounts. It might be a certain percentage of actually real people that might have been in, impacted by this. And think about how tort law operates in the United States. So there, there's going to be more pain if indeed you know there has been a concerted that, uh, mm-hmm. effort. And we, you know, given that it's the beginning of the story, we don't really know uh, a lot, and we have to be a bit uh, cautious. But potentially, there can be a lot more pain for uh, Wells Fargo uh, with this story. I think. Yeah, I, I haven't quite managed to figure out on this one whether they were completely making up customers. How I read it was that they were basically making up accounts for customers that were real, which is why it took such a long time to for it to sort of come out in terms of where it was. But yeah, it's terrifying. If you know, if Wells Fargo were doing this, then you know, there's probably a lot of other banks around America that have been doing it as well. But um, it's kind of a bizarre twist to the kind of mis-selling scandals that we've seen, isn't it? Because this is mis-selling where no one's buying. You know, you, it's just a, another area where incentives for staff, you know, create th- certain behaviours. I think that's absolutely right. I think you know, we in the past crisis we saw everything that was wrong with uh, capital market incentives and how you know bonus structures work and there's a high emphasis on short-term gains and sort of almost you know a no emphasis whatsoever in long-term uh, results. Now I think this you know points us probably what is one of maybe many similar situations on the retail side. You know, the first thing that Wells did was to say that they were going to end, you know, sales gold-based management. That is huge in in the banking industry. The idea that you don't manage to KPIs anymore, Mm. that you don't incentivize your sales network to sell more, is a huge change in in mindset and the way, you know, retail networks are managed. Yeah. So how how much is that? is real though and like you say we, we get into a slit you know we've obviously seen a lot of these positioning statements in, in the UK about you know moving away from either branch network staff or, or uh, telephony staff being purely incentivized in, in sales and you know we've seen the sort of introduction of NPS as a kind of a, a metric for doing it but you know at the end of the day banks are there to provide services to sell products and you know, really, we can't hold that against banks because it's the whole reason they exist, isn't it? It's like trying to have a go at BMW for trying to sell cars. It's literally what they're there to do, isn't it? So, you know, do we really feel that banks can move away from sales targets as an entirety? I think there are different models to different types of clients and, and, and needs. I'm going to take this opportunity to talk about one of our portfolio companies. Uh, the work we do with Cabbage here in the UK, right? In, in the small business space. Typically, a small business owner would come into a branch, not a Santander branch, any branch, and the reaction of the relationship manager is going to be, look, I don't know you. I have to do a lot of paperwork with you. There's a very high chance that risk will want more information or that they will just say no. Why bother, right? I might as well go and, and, and just renew someone else's loan, someone that I've known for five years. I don't need to bother with this. It's a problem of how the incentives are set up, how the cost to serve just doesn't work with that type of client. If you move those clients to a different channel, like an online channel, when they come in and say, look, look, sit here, here's an iPad, I'll help you fill this information in, and I'll give you an, an, an answer in 10 minutes, you are solving the incentive problem because you know, you're, you're, you're removing that asymmetry uh, from the relationship manager. He has to spend the time, and he doesn't want to, and he's not getting paid for it where you just say, hey, look, the only thing you need to do is give him the iPad, help him 
get started. And if the loan converts, you are going to be rewarded as well. So is there still room for salespeople that are incentivized on sales? Absolutely. On certain transactions with certain types of clients. Are there better uh, models for some transactions and some clients, particularly in the retail space? Absolutely. Can we leverage new technology to do so? Yes. Mm. And I think it, the challenge is to find, you know, to try to really think through the different transactions and the different needs that the, the customer present and then say, well, actually, that we can do better with this customer. There's a better way to serve this guy for them and for us. Mm. Yeah. I do find it interesting, though, that that move, you know, that that comparison of digital versus traditional branch is almost becoming dish, uh, digital versus assisted digital. That actually the digital, you know, whether it's in sort of Eastern Europe with the stuff that M-Bank's done or elsewhere, suddenly becomes uh, actually this is the default and we'll help you with that and we'll have people to help you. It's almost like the Apple store, you know, you go in, you could buy it online. This is like online buying with people. It, it's an interesting sort of dynamic. Mm. Yeah, I can see the, 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 the change there. I think it's interesting, like you say, it's almost like the, the idea that kind of a, a, a bloated operating cost has led to, you know, needing to feed the beast, as it were. And actually, if the the beast becomes sort of more efficient in terms of doing it, then actually you can you can actually make less sales, but actually be much more profitable in terms Correct. of doing it. Yeah. Another narrative that I uh, find interesting about this story is you know, we're talking about fintech, so let's focus on the technology, right? Uh, technology is a great enabler of many uh, uh, optimal uh, outcomes, but it can uh, also have suboptimal uh, outcomes, right? 10, 15, 20 years ago, I find it hard to fathom that uh, someone or even a your group of 5,000 people would be able to fake 2 million accounts just because the technology was not there, right? So as you bring new technology solutions, whether they're in a retail uh, format or a wholesale format within a bank or any financial institution, you have to start thinking about uh, the controls and procedures and governance that also have to be tweaked in a way that uh, adapts to what can be done and what can be done now is you know, can be much more destructive if placed in uh, either the wrong hands or not done in, a, uh, in an appropriate fashion. Mm. And I guess that take, that feeds into, I guess, RegTech because arguably there could have been solutions in place for compliance or the sort of local compliance that could have checked this. You know, The fact that one person has just opened 100 accounts in the last hour or, or, you know, one, one bank teller. But the interesting thing about most of the sort of um, low-frequency, high-impact operational risk events show that compliance is almost an afterthought and that you don't even need fancy new technology to check for this. Mm -hmm. Someone, at this scale, someone should have seen it. And if they didn't, there's something about sort of, you know, the entire organization not being set up the right way or the or, or you know again with this asymmetry of incentives being incentivized to just look the other way mm. and we saw this with rogue traders in the past where yeah. uh, who was it, was it um, the Baring brothers Nick Leeson Nick, Nick Leeson yeah. someone did not notice that you know mm. he had broken every single trade limit that he was mm -hmm. uh, supposed to 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 sort of trade by mm -hmm. I think that there's, there's a more when you when you see this scale of problems, you're, you're there's a probably more systemic problem, you know, underlying the the event. Well, and, and that probably you know shows the sign of point as you if you made Pascal really. This is probably the uh, 
slight tip of the iceberg really in terms of the, the the scale of the stuff that we'll see sort of coming through it seems and you know and I guess we need to be sort of reasonably careful on this one but it seems really odd that in July she disappeared and from the organisation retiring and and now we're sort of starting to see all this stuff sort of coming out so uh, I think this one will probably run and run and run so no doubt we'll come back to it at uh, some point in the future um, moving on to the next thing in the news this week, we've seen one of yours actually, Anna, in eFinancial News. So we've seen City FinTech Acceleration Head departs. This seems like quite an interesting one. So I think it, it's interesting in, in light of all other moves we've seen from banks to other banks within FinTech departments or from banks to startups. So this was um, the executive that was in charge of launching the City Mobile Challenge, which was their accelerate sort of startup challenge I guess would be the right word and they did one like quite intensely around the world and then I don't know what really happened to that so he's launching his own company to kind of do fintech stuff for small regional and regional banks but I think we were as we were saying before it's interesting especially in the blockchain area we've seen lots of people shift around so I guess the question is are they finding that it's too hard to do anything within a big bank and so are just deciding to do something else I I see the related sort of related story that in 2016 BNP Paribas, Deloitte, JP Morgan, State Street and I think said UBS have all seen members of their blockchain BNY team depart. I know one bank was uh, telling me with glee that uh, he saw fintech as the R&D department of big banks but actually maybe big banks are the training ground for you know new fintechs. So I think that you have two separate things going on there. For, for one I don't think CD will suffer much. I think, you know, they started this game of corporate venturing and, and acceleration. They're probably the longest running program. They've been there for seven or eight years. They have a very strong team all over the world. So even with one or two departures I wouldn't I wouldn't think that, you know, that organization is any any weaker. I think it's as strong as ever. On the fin on the um, blockchain side, I think what you think is just supply and demand, right? Uh, Everyone and their mother want to play in this, uh, in you know, in this space. Banks are just you know hiring people and trying to create internal labs. And the few banks that have people already working in this for a while, you know, will see their 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 experts departing for for greener pastures, right? It, it's just it's just supply and demand of a very scarce talent. It's really hard to find people who understand both blockchain and sort of regulated enterprise. Uh, software, so so I so think it's a natural move. Do you think banks have set their objectives too high, considering they have like maybe a handful of people around the world who can actually do this or understand this, or they may is maybe people unrealistic in terms of how long it will take? Or I think it's w- with any you know. Unfortunately, we are we are slaves to to, to trends, right? Uh, we saw the same thing with big data maybe five years ago. You know, big data was the thing to do, and you had to have a big analytics team and there weren't really that many good data scientists so we saw a similar thing happening in the space you know I can bet that within the next 18 months we'll see the exact same thing on the on the artificial intelligence uh, side of things so it's just the natural progression of hey this is hot we need to hire people there's not enough people let's just pay whatever they want to you know to to bring them over and you know new younger people will come into the into the space not only do I view it as, as Mariano says, as a natural progression, I think it's a healthy one. You know, you, you take the ecosystem that is the Silicon Valley. This happens all the time, right? 
you have musical chairs, uh, uh, games that are being played. You have uh, employees, top employees, key employees that move from one company to another. There are all kinds of reasons why people move. You know, there are career enhancement uh, uh, moves uh, most of the time, I hope. And to see this happening within the fintech ecosystem and within the fintech ecosystem, within the blockchain ecosystem, I think is very good. Cross-pollination between startups and, and banks, between banks, between in innovation groups and business lines. Uh, I certainly think that uh, we're going to have more because it's going to show that our ecosystem is, uh, is growing as opposed to you know, becoming somewhat stale where not many people move, which would mean that there's not that many opportunities. So for me, for me, yeah, uh, plus one. Yeah. I, I have I, another question. <laughs> That's my job. But <laughs> what happens to projects when someone leaves? Because the teams are so small, and I think maybe at this stage they're very much tied to the enthusiasm of that team. And like, do you think it slows down significantly if, if like the head of the innovation lab at one big bank goes and they're working on like, I mean, and they were associated with it, and there's a, they have a team of five. Does that kind of kill the momentum because? the CEO of the bank will probably have a million other things to do and yeah it was nice until someone convinced him but when that person goes it's gonna kind of I think it depends on how strong the organization is and sort of who the sponsors are just sort of trying to think through you know how we set up a Santa I'm sure if you know one of us left we would see suddenly that some projects just you know get get uh, sidelined and others you know are, are still being pushed because someone Um, you know, that is not us. Are the sponsors that are pushing for it? So, I, th I think um, there's always clearly champions of, of, of things internally, isn't there? I think there's a, you know, the, your example, head of innovation generally isn't the person in an organization who's driving significant changes in terms of where we're going. So, you know, maybe we, you know, we're not going to see share price drop off city in terms of this particular change, but. You know, maybe there's a couple of projects or a, a way of doing something that we'll never know really the the impact of the the change in terms of what we're seeing. You know, but I do wonder if, if at least in the startup world, it does seem that there are you know 10x people. You know, you want a, a small team of incredibly talented people in order to deliver something, and then it almost becomes like professional sports. You know, it's actually people trading between teams, people moving. It's talent. And then actually it's about trying to find and keep and, you know, and move that talent as it moves around. Absolutely. Um, which, which gets, I think, really interesting when, I guess, if you've got a traditional sort of banking executive who views people interchangeably. You know, do you think that they get that there are supremely talented people who will have a material impact on, on their business? On the innovation side, maybe. I think, you know, if you look at trading, for instance, trading is a prime example. There are some traders who are your rainmakers and yeah. will just give them whatever money they want because they make the P&L. Yeah. Others are fungible, and it's fine if they leave because you're going to hire someone very similar from some other place. So, you know, as with, as with sports, as with anything, the good guys you want to keep, yeah. but then you have, you know, a group of people that... Well, they leave, you'll have to find someone to replace them, but it's not the end of the world. I would make the same comment applied to the, the, the projects, right? Survival of the uh, the fittest, the best projects will always find the uh, the right champions within the uh, organization. So, net net, I'm not sure that that game of musical chairs has a material impact. Okay, I don't. Um, you know, having spent a bit of time in a bank, I, I don't think banks necessarily respect technical expertise in the way that actually technology firms do to a certain degree. And I think that's where we we sort of start to see the the shakeup. I think. You know, big data is something that's, as, as your example, Mariano, is, it has 
data is something that banks have kind of got their head around and it's just it's a kind of a change in specialism and a change in emphasis and some some technology that's been brought in to really sort of facilitate doing it in a different way i think blockchain is such a and you know to, to a certain degree artificial intelligence as well is is such a different mindset in terms of what happens how it works what you do how you implement it that actually i think banks have probably got no no alternative other than just using a, a you know a, a vendor to kind of um, create all of its intelligence around doing it which is probably a pretty terrifying place to be than than investing in a, a team of experts to do it so two things on that one i wouldn't discount the big data not being the exact same thing five ten years ago right in my previous life as a consultant i remember that banks were terrified because they didn't understand big data and they didn't have the, the right capabilities in-house and they had to find them somewhere mm. on the blockchain side i think what we've seen over the past two years was Banks didn't really understand. Well, they understood there was an opportunity, but they didn't understand the technical side of things. Maybe 15 months ago, mm-hmm. you know, when I started with with Innoventures, for instance, we understood there was an opportunity there, but we didn't really get it. Yeah. Over these past 15 years, I think banks have ramped up their internal skills and capabilities. We have developed labs. We've started playing around with technology, run free proof of concept with vendors with within the bank with other banks in bilateral or multilateral uh, pilots and I think we are at a point where there's a bunch of maybe 10-15 banks who actually get it and where the space for vendors to come and say hey this is a use case that you should be adopting is narrowing uh, down right Where, where, where it's much more driven by hey this is what we need this is where we see the opportunities to apply this technology and this is how we want to apply it and these are the challenges that we will have Mm. rather than this being a vendor or startup driven conversation but that's that's we're getting very just i can't even remember why we started this conversation in terms of (laughs) what the news article was but but actually the um the that landscape is so different than in the blockchain space isn't it you know actually a a bank driven use case landscape is very different to uh, and the the buying behavior there is very very different so so almost the the complexities of blockchain have led to the banks really making sure they understand it before they do something about it which you know when we've sort of seen the 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 sort of froth around um you know various different bits of fintech people have got kind of all you know hot and bothered about this and that sort of buzzword type thing so maybe that's a great thing you know actually we're, we're in a situation where how different blockchain is has forced people to really understand it before they start spending money. I would explode that uh, comment to any and all key enabling technology. It's not necessarily only blockchain. I mean, blockchain as opposed to traditional payment technology, yes, Mm -hmm. but blockchain versus machine learning, deep learning, versus quantum computing, which is going to come within the next uh, coming years, probably is, we we can make the the, the same points. They are unique in, in a certain way. And you have to insert, you know, a new portion of DNA within the bank so that the, the, the stock of a technologist that is focused on that particular enabling technology is going to rise within the, uh, the, yeah, the I, bank. So I, it's I like the generic. I wouldn't make a, you know, I wouldn't make blockchain a unique case. I think it has its particularities. I think it has its ability to enable banks. But I think the AI revolution is going to be an order of magnitude more significant to banks. Mm than blockchain. Why? Because AI applies to anything and everything. It can apply to re-engineering back and middle uh, office processes. 
It can be applied to reinventing the way we engage customers. It can be applied to the way we process information. It's more far-reaching than than what blockchain uh, can do, right? So, but but we haven't really seen the the same level of yes. investment in. <laughs> You've answered my question, okay? And obviously, Mariana, you did a PhD in AI, which we'll yep. get into it a little bit later on, but. Um, Okay, moving on, because um, that's uh, pretty good timing for only getting through um, news item number two, which we seem to set a record each time, So, which is, which is kind of good going. So up on the third one, we've got the UK regulator is the most fintech friendly on the planet, which is quite an interesting, uh, interesting statement to, uh, to come out from the FT. Well, I guess there are a series of stories that all seem to be around sort of the uh, regulators, global regulators, and trying to enable fintech and the brand new sort of propositions and technologies that that delivers to deliver uh, better value for end customers. So we've got UK regulators, the most fintech friendly, Hong Kong to launch banking fintech sandbox, and Singapore and Switzerland to forge fintech pact. So is there is are suddenly regulators the new rock stars in terms of pushing forward and, and enabling uh, fintech? Oh, you'll never hear me call them rock stars, but definitely... They are enablers, and I think particularly in the UK, we are very lucky with the regulators that we have. I think with the sandbox, the FCA has taken a very bold and ambitious step that helps not only fintech startups try things with a safety net, but allows banks to collaborate with startups, which I think is the the way forward to, for the industry. So. I, for once, am a big supporter of what the FCA is doing, and I think it, it's great. And if other regulators want to adopt that model, then even better. Yeah, I wouldn't use the word friendly, actually. I certainly hope that regulators are not going to be too friendly with uh, startups, new technologies, new business models, or even incumbents. I would say commonsensical, right? Regulation has had a tendency of being um, top-down, whether uh, by legislative or by regulatory fiat, um, having programs that enable regulators to sample different technologies, sample different startups, look at data sets, both input and, uh, and output, from a bottoms-up point of view is a first. And I think that's, that's needed for them to catch up with uh, the rate of change that, that we see accelerating. And I would, I would make an analogy uh, I would compare the uh, FCA's move in, in creating a bottoms-up uh, approach with the sandbox to what the uh, FDA is doing with the uh, drugs in the U.S., right? Uh, the Food and Drug Administration has a nine- or ten-step approach for any type of new drug where you start with lab testing and then uh, you have five or six different, quote-unquote, live tests on humans mm-hmm. Uh, without, you know, hopefully any type of mortality rate up until you reach the point where you, uh, you approve. That pragmatic, right, A-B testing in vitro or in live environments uh, was something that was really needed. And I think that the, the fintech craze that we've seen for the past five, six, seven years has definitely prodded some regulators to at last understand that they have to disrupt this themselves. And I certainly hope as well as uh, believe that you're going to have many, many more regulators that follow in the, uh, the FCA's footsteps from that perspective. I'm, I'm quite curious to see, one, what the European Union does, because it's kind of been my kind of pet peeve and now 
situation has completely changed from a year ago, but I was thinking the UK has been doing so much. What happens if the commission wakes up and they say, oh, no, this is not fine. Let's do it. Everybody has to do it together in the same way, and they don't get inspired by the FCA, and then suddenly all the, everybody has to have the same rules, but they don't make sense. Now that's not an issue anymore. And now we make our own rules. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. So who cares? But I guess for the rest of the continent, um, that will be interesting. And then also the U.S. because they've they've been saying stuff, but they've been pretty quiet compared to to regulators here. And I'm I'm keen to see what whether they're just studying the situation or whether they prefer not to do anything. And and but it will be interesting, or whether they come out with something completely amazing and better and and. Well, the, the U.S. government have definitely been sort of looking at what the, the rest of the world has been doing, haven't they? They've, they've been conducting, you know, significant amounts of um, engagements with people to really sort of learn what it is that others have been doing. I think their inability, and you know, Pascal, jump in because I know you live in in uh, that neck of the woods type thing, but their inability, I think, to join up all the states collectively yeah. to to do things. Mm-hmm. And the, the fact that state-by-state state regulation kind of uh, impairs sort of significant rollout of any of these things will just mean it will be a kind of a, a legislative bomb fight, shall we say, in terms of sort of making it happen. But maybe there will be a standout state, no? What do you think, Pascal? Someone no, I, I, I think the... I, I think th- there's movement. Things are happening, right, in the, uh, in the states. The OCC has a task force. The Fed has a task force. The FDIC has a task force. And the CFPB is thinking about the, having a, a, a task force, right? <laughs> they have a task um, force for, for creating a task force. Yes. And the, uh, the OCC is the most advanced, right? They are midway or midstream through uh, thinking through and uh, releasing some type of fintech license or charter. They're uh, also working on the sandboxes or sandbox environments, uh, not as mature as the one that the FCA has uh, because of what what you're mentioning, which is balkanization of the regulatory landscape. The fact that the legislative aspect in the states is probably a little more difficult to navigate for uh, for a a regulator. So I I would expect something similar uh, coming up on the the banking side with, um, and to tie back to uh, what uh, Anna was uh, uh, querying about, you know, two or three states that matter. Uh, for banking regulation, much much like the New York with the uh, uh, with their financial uh, uh, regulator, California, and even Washington State, from the point of view of uh, data, you have a lot of uh, technology giants out there. If you if you're able to federate these two or three states, you don't really need all the others. Again, from a banking perspective, for insurance, uh, for payments, it's a different uh, uh, landscape. And within the next 24 months, uh, and that's my crystal ball at, at, uh, speaking. I think that we will uh, we will have a counterpoint, not exactly the same as the FCA, right? You know, we're talking about uh, a completely different uh, market structure, but something where startups, incumbents, and uh, and regulators will uh, will be at the interacting. I think that's uh, inevitable. So I guess through I mean regulation has come about through crisis, collapse, and crime. I guess you know over the last. God knows how many years, every time there's a big problem, there's more regulation that's just accumulated and accumulated. I guess with, the, with your portfolio companies, with new startups, do you see sort of regulatory and c- compliance being a, a break to their, their innovation? Do you have companies that have to spend a lot of time getting into this and even understanding the basics before they, they get going? For me, it's, for me, it's one of the things that we sort of check and do diligence, right? Do they have a chief compliance officer? How, do they have a compliance plan? If they don't, then that's a very good signal that they don't really understand the market they're getting into. Mm-hmm. And from a sort of just business feasibility perspective, 
it's one more bucket of cost. And if it's well budgeted and they understand that they have to do it, then I think it's it's fine, right? It's it's I haven't seen any company say, Oh, you know, it's amazing we can't do this because of regulation. Not not yet. You know, Pascal sees probably ten times more company than I do on a monthly basis. But um, what's your view, Pascal? I think it's a, we, we're looking at a varied landscape. So a regulatory threshold for a payment business obviously is much uh, lower than for a would-be uh, bank, or even for an insurer, right? That wants to that has aspirations to be more than just a broker or a master uh, general uh, agent. So it's very much case by case basis. I would that uh, I would say, with a sprinkle of are you going with mark to to market with a drastically new business model? that is going to freak out regulators or something that is, has an incremental uh, uh, tweak that people like, uh, are going to understand. So the more you go into it's you know, really deep, uh, deeply innovative and it's completely new and it's going to freak out, quote-unquote, a regulator, the more you have to go down the path of you know, better have a good legal budget, better have a <laughs> chief compliance officer, better have you know, good lobbying efforts so that you get your uh, message across. And if you don't have that, then you know, I personally as an investor feel uh, quite nervous because you not prepared for the uh, battle ahead. So. so can I, this may be an unfair question, what do you think of the sort of the percentage load or the range of, of load on a startup that regulation brings from the simplest, you know, payment player to a um, freak out the startup, a freak out the regulator kind of startup? There's such a range, right? I, I think that's the that's the difficult thing. Is, that, is actually when you when you sort of look at the range of what fintech is and what comes through it, that actually it could be a an incredibly complex trading thing, or it could be yeah, yeah. something that's like a PFM tool. So it's kind of it's very difficult to say. Yeah, I would, and I it would might say, be secret sauce, right? As right. I, it's, yeah, difficult to give quantitatively a number in either pounds or uh, or dollars. What I would say is that what most startups get tripped. Uh, on and don't really understand is, or, or their thought process is, they overcompensate and think that it's a major issue to get to a license. Uh, I'll go to FinCEN in the, uh, in the States or I go to my, uh, the state where I operate to get a uh, payment license. Or I'm an insurance broker and, and I'll get this insurance with this particular state in Florida, for example, right? That's all and good. It might not be as expensive uh, as one uh, uh, may think, but they underestimate uh, and undercompensate on the management of the uh, uh, of the license right throughout the lifetime of their business model and I, I think that that's a misunderstanding where I see a lot of mistakes being uh, being made yeah. we're going to spend a hundred thousand two hundred five hundred thousand uh, dollars up front and then we don't have a budget for the refilings on a yearly basis the compliance reports the intricacies of like this minute change in this law that actually has an impact on uh, on your business model. So I, I always urge entrepreneurs to think dynamically as opposed to, oh, well, we have this gating factor, we have this license, and now all is good, and we're <laughs> going to be able to do business. And that's not the case. Interesting. Moving on to the next one, then. We, we have a, what reads slightly sort of press release I'll be honest with you, if, uh, sort of reading through this, is the FI on FI News of CBA and Barclays reveal long-distance fintech solution. And I think while, um, you know, maybe CBA and Barclays opening up a... Um, you know, a, a kind of an international payments transfers capability is maybe, uh, like I say, a bit PRE and on, on doing it. Does this maybe show a, a bit of a sign of, you know, pushing back pressure on fintech people like TransferWise? Do we think this is maybe a, you know, their, their play in terms of doing it? Definitely. But I think more importantly, it, it points out to 
what I believe to be a fundamental flaw in in the way some of these fintechs attack op so-called opportunities in the space. We're discussing this with Pascal today. Um, they go for a pot of money, for a revenue pool, that naturally within a banking relationship sort of is commingled with other things, right? You pay a bit more on the fees, but then you don't pay for your credit card or something like that, right? Effectively, banks can cut the fees to zero tomorrow, right? So what is to be today perceived as a competitive advantage or a better business model is just an arbitrage on a race to the bottom. And so I think what we'll see is more banks doing this, uh, you know, starting to focus on cross-currency payments in specific corridors that have good liquidity where they can make money on the FX. They will, everyone will start, it will be a race to the bottom. Everyone will start, will start dropping their fees. And in the end, it will be a, you know, a terrible business for everyone, yes. effectively. Can I, um, can I say something? Thinking of people lowering their fees in a race to the bottom, I thought about stock trading, right? That's what happened with you when you had the, um, the new trading platforms. But it seems that the new guys, like BATS, they're still doing really well, and they're still getting, like, they're the biggest exchange in Europe, right? So maybe that means that the startups will still remain the good ones because of other things that happen. Like, the price goes down, everybody has a low price, but then the other people are left with having to keep up an organization with a lot well, less money. Well, I mean, the equity model is one where less clearing houses is better. Mm -hmm. And so you have few exchanges and you won't have 10,000 exchanges. But with the advent of distributed ledger technology, there's no reason why every single bank in the world can have their own rails. Yeah. Right? And once you have the rails, it's just a question of having a commercial agreement with someone on the other side who has the liquidity and say, hey, let's just do instant payments between Singapore and Argentina. Mm. And suddenly now you have two banks, you know, connecting that one. And so I think the BACS example is, is not maybe the best one for this because rails will be very, very cheap. It'll be mm. much cheaper than they are today. The challenge will be in managing the liquidity at either end. And banks naturally have a lot of that liquidity already. So I'm not sure we'll see a space where the startups win. There might be a bit of a hybrid model with some startups partnering with banks and so you know they run the technology and the banks still run the liquidity or they become big enough that they have liquidity in some currency pairs but effectively so there's no you think there's no remittance of the new remittances companies there's I no think one it will be, it, it, it become a very cheap commodity I think it's something you get for free with your bank account so what's the play for the big investors, Silicon Valley guys, pouring millions into people like Don't transfer wise? <laughs> well, the, uh, we can theorize, right, from a game theory point of view and a strategic uh, point of view. If you have incumbents pushing back against the, the transfer wise uh, uh, gambit, i.e., a monoline and I'm uh, driving down uh, uh, costs, then you know there's one natural avenue for a transfer wise or for the transfer wise of the world, which is let's switch from being monoline to start adding other services to like our, uh, codes, uh, to our uh, platform, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's all and good, but from that perspective, it's a much more complex business model, completely different costs of acquisition, uh, completely different demands on, uh, on capital, and I'm, I'm sure that there are some Silicon Valley uh, investors that thought through this <laughs> and know that uh, over a certain period of time, the demands on, uh, on, their, on their own bank accounts to fund these companies that are going to be more resilient by going from monoline to multiline is going to be much higher than, than we may think. But that, that to me, is a natural second move for the transfer wise of the, uh, the world. Whether that is going to be successful 
remains to, get, uh, to be seen. But anything that is commoditized where you are monoline is going to be a very, very difficult at the journey. And at the, old, the old saying of, like, I will be making it on volume is going to be very difficult to add. Uh, and to, to the point of either the sort of the going from monoline to multi-line or call, let's call it the rebundling of banking, that I think this is a topic that has been, you know, beaten to death. You're back to the same sort of situation that banks have, which is, so if you have a product that doesn't make money in and of itself, why are you subsidizing it? Either you have a full customer uh, relationship and you make money overall and you know that some products are subsidizing others, or you just focus on the products that make money, which 70% of the cases in banking sort of over a full cycle are credit. Maybe now that we are in a low interest rate environment, they are not credit, but historically they are. So for a bank, it makes sense to have a full relationship because they make money on something and they don't make money on something else. For either a new startup that has to start diversifying their product portfolio or for some entity that starts sort of bundling or rebundling these products, why would you subsidize, you know, something if it, it doesn't make any economic sense from a, just a business case or investor-based perspective, right? So I'm, I'm quite cynical about that whole process, and I think there are, there, are a number of, there are a number of revenue pools that are being decimated by startups. I think, you know, remittances is one. I think uh, robo-advisory or wealth advisory is another one. I am not... I don't see a rosy end, neither for banks nor startups. I don't really, I don't really think there'll be a clear winner. But I think, I mean, it ties into that uh, conversation of are you a feature or are you a business? You know, and I think it's interesting in those, just as you say, being able to to take a proportion of people that are either underserved or overcharged, focus specifically on them, and then grow something, you know, from that is interesting. I, I remember, I think we spoke a couple of podcasts ago about there was a, a write-up of TransferWise looking at the major money corridors. And I think for, a, for some of the absolute big ones, they're like fifth in the league table. You know, where people really want to compete and are really in there, you know, the, the big boys were killing them. For those areas where arguably less people have heard of them, and so they're taking a small proportion of the market and doing well, actually there's this arbitrage of just making fees off the people who haven't heard of TransferWise. Well, it's not the people who haven't heard of TransferWise, it's the the, the, the big corridors have very, very narrow mar- yeah, uh, spreads. Yeah. The illiquid corridors yeah. have big spreads, and you make money on the big spreads, right? Yeah. We've seen this in, in, in capital markets maybe seven years ago or so, when when the FX market got cornered by what are known as the flow monsters, mm-hmm. the city and the Deutsche of, of this world, mm-hmm. and everyone else wasn't making money in the you know most uh, liquid mm-hmm. uh, pairs, and that was it. They were not making money. You're talking about banks that are huge. So yeah, can you make money in the liquid ones? Sure. Do you do you become a niche player then? Are you going to do like you know yeah. Philippines Israel sure. uh, type uh, business? Maybe, but will you make money on the USD Euro or USD uh, Sterling? Probably not. But you don't think actually it's not the end game for them that they're actually looking for a beachhead to establish a you know some kind of. I mean, we've we've seen Transferwise have just launched a payment card. You know, so is this a get a lot of you know there are. There are specific players focusing on travellers or students, or but I'm sure that's not their end game. That actually it's a case of trying to to penetrate a market and then spread from there. 
you know, Facebook started with Harvard business, Harvard students. And it wasn't the end game. So absolutely, I think that's that sort of you know the the network effect, and that's how you get the hockey stick user base. But if you don't make money with few clients, why do you make money with a lot of clients? But but I'd, I'd say arguably some of the products that we're seeing this within. So you know, insurance is a really good example. Like travel insurance is an industry that hasn't made money for forever and is kind of a lost leader for most of the insurers that do it. But is that just because the product hasn't actually evolved in the way that actually people should be consuming it in a digital world? So the idea that we average out risk across everywhere you could possibly travel and sell you a policy is why that, that actually doesn't make anybody any money in terms of sort of doing it. So I kind of think almost if some of these products become you know, digital in terms of how they would, would work and actually, like, like you say, why, why in the sense of it as a company would I sell a product that I don't make money out of? Kind of going back to the, should we really be beating banks up by trying to sell products that make them money? Probably not. It's kind of why they're there. So maybe this is just a symptom of, you know, TransferWise got out there and evolved the product a little bit, made it much more operationally efficient to do it. And the gorillas have kind of woken up with so banks. So I, I think gone. there are exactly two options. One is the one you mentioned, and I have yet to see what that evolution looks like. I think, and I, I might be completely wrong because I've lived all of my life in different sides of banking, but effectively that's the only thing I know. But I think banking as a business model has been, again, beaten to death over the past 400 years. I'm not sure there are really new ways of making money with customers. Maybe there are. Maybe the, you know, the Googles and the Apples and the Facebooks of this world will find a way of doing that. Maybe people will pay for convenience rather than, than for you know, just choose the cheapest product. Mm-hmm. Uh, but effectively... For instance, in the space of remittances, I don't really think that you can go to you can go from hey we decided to charge nothing to now we're going to charge you something. The the, the typical sort of you know 07, 08 internet e-commerce sorry early two thousands e-commerce internet model where we charge nothing we get you know a lot of uh, customers and now we start charging mm-hmm. that doesn't work in banking right that won't work you won't I don't really think that transferwise will be able to just go back and start saying you know what now we're going to start charging you five bucks for for each uh, transaction. Mm. Well, because the technology at the moment is that anybody can do that for a lot cheaper in terms of what they're doing. I think that's probably what CBA and Barclays are kind of proving here now is that what TransferWise kind of went out and did and got many plaudits doing, actually big banks can do themselves as well. So it's pretty easy. You know, really, there's not much change. When is that going, like, when is someone going to decide we're going to now completely Wipe. Like that's been to, like honestly, a couple of years, it's, and I no, get, always honestly, get the answer. They're not threatening yet, and like blah blah blah. Honestly, today as I a think customer, you know, I honestly today I think it's a business decision. It's not a technological decision. I think that if you know, business managers said, you know what, I'm going to forego my X millions that I make in remittances to keep this customer and sell something else across the relationship. It's going to happen. The first bank will do it, and then everyone else will follow. Mm-hmm. And that's it. That's the end of, of you know charging fees for for cross currency payments. Interesting to see when that will happen. Yeah, definitely will be will the be. first. Yeah, exactly. The the tipping point. Who's the first, and then the dominoes coming. Um, moving on to the next one, we've seen, and there's probably a, again a uh, you know a, a looming threat of this one has been around for for quite some time. But we've seen Facebook come out and actually announce that they will be allowing payments via Messenger. So this is quite an interesting one, really, because I guess it's been a possibly the worst kept secret in uh, in what Facebook have been doing for forever but it's nice to actually see them sort of fess up and come out and actually say it so how do we see this one shaping up really if you know if I can actually just start paying people over messenger will I really 
go to all the trouble of authenticating through my, my bank's app and do it through there, or is that just the way things will go? I don't know. I'm, I was wonder, I'm wondering, why didn't they do it via WhatsApp, right? Why are they doing it via... I don't know, maybe it's just a question of what you use most, but I, I think mainly the question is, what about all those startups that are just based on a chat where you can pay your friends and where you can uh, not make it awkward for them, remind them that they owe you... For, like they're. I mean, I don't know what's going to happen to banks, but for startups, it's definitely not good news. Like, if if your whole business model is like a chat, and there are many that it's like a Venmo style. You yeah, know, exactly. So, uh, but I don't know. Well, I would I would say that it probably is going to come to uh, WhatsApp uh, fairly soon. I would also say that Facebook is probably trying to emulate and 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 copy what WeChat you know has been doing very very successfully with a variety of uh, services within the the, the the financial industry sphere. So we should expect more, probably more than just one or two use cases around payments, more diverse payments, cross-border, uh, P2P, P2 merchant, um, and so on and so forth, as well as, as other products being in, intermediated and, uh, and transacted on messaging apps. Given that, like, one of the main theses out there is messaging platforms are going to be, you know, at least for the next five to ten years, the number one mode through which people, you and I, are going to interact with that, uh, with one another. So off of that, what does a Facebook want out of uh, payments? Probably not necessarily payments per se. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they may want the ability to get their hands on the data and the metadata to monetize that in ways that you know, we may not be uh, privy to. So is there a way for uh, banks and payments companies to collaborate with a Facebook or any other messaging platform, Facebook Messenger or any other messaging platform whereby there is a division of labor and, you know, both parties are able to uh, uh, get what they want revenue-wise and profit-wise out of these uh, services? I certainly think so. I I would be very surprised if there was a path towards... Facebook becoming a financial institution, right? Uh, that that seems to be, that may have worked with WeChat in in China, but I, I think it's going to be a very high bar uh, both in uh, Europe and in uh, and in the states. I don't know. If you have uh, I think a it, I think it's interesting because the press release talks about uh, making it possible to pay pay for goods or services through messenger, through bots or automated programs. So that instantly kind of conjures WeChat and the fact that I, you know, look for a restaurant or buy flowers, up comes my nice little integrated interface into Messenger. I swipe through the Mother's Day bundles, press a button, you know, and the payment is integrated within it. It takes you to that sort of mini app you don't have to install because it's there within, you know, within yeah, Facebook Messenger. So, yeah, agree, but... Sort of in the same trend and following this the, the framework that Andres in created in terms of whoever sits at the top of the stack yeah. gets to disintermediate everyone else. Yeah, I almost see this as a defensive move. Do we think Facebook Messenger is at the top of the stack? No. We just invested in a company called Payki, an Israeli company. I just won the BBA Open Talent. They have a keyboard that allows you to do payments across any messaging network, right? Fantastic company, really good. Right, not just Facebook, you can do it over WhatsApp, Line, whatever you want, it's just on the the keyboard. Text message, anything. So we're already one level up on the stack. Are we at the top of the stack? No. Siri is one level above us, right? 
So I think payments will become ubiquitous and they won't be driven by one channel. And in the end, Messenger is probably one of the largest channels in the world. But I want to be able to do payments by saying, hey, Siri, send money to David. I don't care if it was over WhatsApp, it was over you know the phone, or how we managed to yeah. get into that transaction. It's, it's interesting, like you say, that this is this could be perceived as a defensive play by Facebook, right? You know, arguably, I don't really see Messenger by Facebook really being that successful in terms of doing it. You know, if I was going to message any one of you guys, it would be like fifth or sixth in the way that I might use to try and reach you guys so it's kind of a it is an interesting thing and like you say moving further and further up the stack you know I do uh, you know the, the pay key pitch right you know it's about uh, moving to uh, contextual payments and that's that's really about moving into the operating system really rather than actually moving into uh, uh, an app that you do something in so um, yeah interesting to see how this one sort of takes off but I guess interestingly on that stack you know for for at least a fair proportion of users you know the iPhone the Apple uh, Apple iOS is at the top of that stack yeah. and given that they're integrating payments very much into Safari and the iPhone or into Siri it's going to be interesting because arguably they could say well we'd like a proportion of whatever payments go through our phone same way they're doing with uh, with Apple Pay right yeah I mean effectively if you look at what Siri is the, the way Siri is going now through sort of opening an API and allowing third parties to interact with mm-hmm. the platform it's the same thing that uh, Viv mm-hmm. uh, in the end at right now the way we know sort of you know human computer interface voice will sit at the top mm-hmm. we haven't seen yet what comes after but if effectively I can tell Siri you know book my tickets to Madrid send my mother flowers and pay Pascal some money mm-hmm. I a, lot, need, a lot of money a lot of money <laughs> uh, you know I, I've disintermediated everyone else and I get to keep a proportion of each one of those transactions mm-hmm. Which I guess brings on to the story uh, that uh, the Amazon Echo is uh, being released in in the UK. So while that sort of everyone's been focused on the the context of talking to your mobile phone, it seems at least in the US that you know Amazon has has stolen a march on quite a few competitors. Surprisingly, in in giving us that Star Trek uh, world of being able to uh, to talk to the room, talk to the house to get things done. Well, I'm, I'm going to be the Grinch on this uh, on this one. I'm, I've certainly uh, read a lot of sexy PR around. Oh, we're going to have all kinds of use cases off of Amazon Echo. You can check your balance. You can make a transaction other than like purchasing from Amazon, which obviously is front of mind for uh, uh, Amazon and and works very very well. I, I, I think we're at the very very early innings uh, of that uh, of that narrative of that journey. Financial institutions are just not ready to bring out in the open and, and with this platform from a privacy point of view, from a uh, security uh, uh, point of view, from a technology point of view, from a co- compliance uh, point of view, any type of you know private and sensitive uh, information. So there's lots of twists that uh, are going to happen. Um, lots of banks are trying to uh, say and position themselves as saying we're bringing a chatbot or a skill to uh, Amazon Echo and we're able to do this uh, or that. I think it's more you know, putting the uh, cart before the horses uh, at this stage. Well, make some good PR, won't it? There'll be at least a, a fair few stories around. It's yeah, yeah. You need to do some A/B testing and show that you're doing some sexy stuff to the chairman. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've uh, you sort of convinced me to buy one pretty quickly, didn't you, Jason? So uh, come on, so it didn't take much convincing. Yeah, it took it? about three seconds to buy one. So I, I will test this one and see. And if if my four year old is sort of 
suddenly making payments to everybody's bank account pretty quickly, then uh, we'll, we'll sort of figure out that that's a and bad idea. As your four-year-old is pe- pressing all those dash buttons as well. Well, he, he managed to spend £300 on Minion Rush on the Apple TV about 15 seconds after I bought it. So, you know, if anybody can do this, then he's like the absolute one in terms of doing that one. So, I have uh, a business model for a new startup. It, exactly, <laughs> yeah. Stu- stupidity in children, it's always a good place to go. Um, right, so moving on, we, we have a, an interesting one here. So we have the new chewable banknote that has been released in uh, in the UK. So this is the new £5 note, which is chewable, washable, and harder to fake. And we have quite a disturbing picture to uh, to actually sort of accompany this one in the New York Times of Mark Carney, the governor of the Bank of England, for anybody who doesn't know, literally dipping the new £5 note into a bunch of food down White Cross Street Market, which in itself seems to be the most unhygienic thing I've ever possibly seen. So if you're kind of walking through that market and you see what looks like sweet chili chicken of some description, <laughs> I'd probably advise you to kind of stay clear of it. But um, what do we think of this then? All, you know, all of the stuff that we've been talking about today in terms of digital payments and capability, innovation in banknotes, do we need it? But Mariano, you're on a liquid diet, right? So chewable is really not that interesting. Yeah. <laughs> well, does it contain alcohol when you chew it? I, I think that's like V2.0 yeah. for the pound note. Wow, so, that, that would be interesting. An, an alcohol-based currency system. That, that seems, I'm pretty sure my university was basically based on something quite similar in terms of doing it. But yeah. I'm a millennial, so hey, I'm the... Ooh, so I don't, I don't really use cash if I if I don't have to see, so, I, cl- so for me mind. it's completely irrelevant that they knew they launched but, but then I see I understand that maybe for some some portions of the population see it it's older too, people and they're on ba- no no but even if you're like on bank and don't have a bank account and there's older no French people or there's no AT, like free ATMs in your neighborhood and you have to pay one pound and you make no money then it might be a concern that you have to go get cash like you know so have they use more cash they have a store so Maybe it's unfair to say this is completely irrelevant. Who cares? But on the scale of important things and, and stuff in general, there was a there was a, a statistic sort of buried deep in the article that last year twenty one thousand seven hundred forty five notes of all denominations were returned as mutilated. <laughs> <laughs> so, so my question is, why are the why is this a thing? Why what's the innovation here? Polymer. Bank yeah, I, I think this is a case of uh, the Bank of England uh, catching up with uh, other central banks and adopting polymer technology for uh, for banknotes, right? Other Australia, central banks have Canada. done so in the uh, in the past, yeah. and it's like you know painting that 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 corner with where fraud can happen and counterfeit money money can happen, you know, smaller intermediary at the step from a you know Darwinian and uh, evolutionary point of view, which as uh, states, you know, uh, is going to lead us eventually to cashless uh, societies probably sooner in uh, developed uh, uh, economies than em- emerging economies but I, I think it's normal it's probably nice PR for the Bank of England to say it's chewable and uh, hopefully your toddler is not going to uh, get any type of poisoning from like chewing your five pound note you know washable I'm not sure if that's really a good selling point for uh, for notes but you know who knows yeah, I just don't get why they would use the idea of dipping this into something, the marketing bit, 
that needs to be used to, to communicate that they adopted polymer technology. It, it does seem like very odd PR, and I'll be honest, in the picture, he does look incredibly uncomfortable doing it. So yeah. I think somebody somewhere has made a, an interestingly and, bad decision. There, Should it be the puppy or, you know, the, like, <laughs> a cat. could have thought of a different a meme, couldn't we? Yeah. Could have been Cheryl. And there are things that just don't go well together, you know? I remember, you know, a while back, someone decided to open a restaurant within a barber shop. <laughs> there are things that not, wow. don't go well wow. together. I can't really think of curry and a banknote in it. It's just no. not in the thing that comes to mind. Right? But maybe we'll see a whole new kind of new set of innovation where people are folding <laughs> five pound notes to do stuff to make a straw that they can then drink through. Or yeah. well, the, the, the straw thing was very popular with the U.S. dollars uh, for a while oh, for really? a completely different uh, <laughs> uh, purposes, right? Through the nose, not through the mouth. Um, I, I, I think on that on that grounds, I think we should probably move on quite quickly from from, from that one. So last up, we've got an, a news item coming from CoinDesk. So we have big banks invest fifty five million in blockchain startup Ripple. So Series B, great sort of turn in terms of doing it we um, we had the Ripple guys on earlier on in terms of what we're doing so uh, congratulations to the guys in terms of that one com- coming through uh, congratulations <laughs> to the team we are actually uh, investors in Ripple Series A and Series B you know talking to the theme that we were discussing before in terms of cross-currency payments how we make the rails cheaper faster uh, more efficient more transparent I think this 3D ledger technology is clearly the enabling technology there and uh, Ripple is by far the most advanced startup in that space, and so we've been supporters for you know uh, of them for a while, and, and we lo- we launched the PayU app in a closed pilot here in the UK, where we we did effectively cross currency payments to US dollars and euro using Ripple. So I think it's great news. The company is doing great. It's uh, having you know traction with with other major banks to do. To do the same sets, the same or similar things, you know they have a very very strong development uh, development team, and and are getting to, I think a good maturity with their product. Yeah, but uh, that's all good and well. But are the XRPs uh, chewable and uh, <laughs> I, I, I next time I'm around the, the office, I'm going to ask for you know at the, at the board at the board yeah. Yeah. banana flavored uh, XRP. It's, it's all well and good, guys, but can I eat it? Yeah. <laughs> On that note, um, let's uh, hear from our sponsors. Let's be honest. Most digital banking experiences just aren't that amazing. Learn how more than 180 banks worldwide, including Barclays, Deutsche Bank, and BBVA, innovate faster with Strands as their trusted fintech partner. To find out more, visit strands.com today. Back to it, guys, and we're going to delve a little bit more into uh, the background of, of yourself, Mariano, and, and, and Pascal. So thank you very much for, for sticking around for this one. Pleasure. Pleasure. You guys have got some pretty impressive CVs in terms of sort of going through this. And actually, you've got a pretty damn impressive job title as well. So, Mariana, you're the managing partner of Santander's InnoVentures Santander Global Group VC Fund, which in itself sounds like it, you know, I have a consistent thing with people. That title is just not going to fit on business cards, is it? How do you actually sort of convey that to people? I just say that I run Santander's Global VC Fund. I think back when I wrote that in uh, LinkedIn, I didn't even know what the uh, Innoventures was, so I had to spell it out for myself and others. But I think you know we are a point in, a in-, in the industry where people understand what corporate uh, venturing is and and why we're doing it. And so just saying, 
with our Santander's VC arm is, is good enough. I agree. Before we get into a little bit more about what you both do with uh, with regards to Santander, then um, tell us a little bit more about your backgrounds. You know, both of you guys have, like I say, have covered quite a, a varied industry in terms of uh, things that you've done. I, I see you've got a, a BA in computer science, Mariana. Yeah, so I I've been in finance most of my life. I would say ninety percent. I started as a computer science and philosophy actually uh, undergrad. I was an uh, equities and equity derivatives trader for a while back in Argentina. I had uh, my own startup uh, also back in the day, very innovative uh, digital marketing back in 93, uh, which was effectively just creating floppy disks with, with uh, advertising. So that was my, my foray into, um, into entrepreneurship. I then went to become a management consultant. Sorry, I first went into a hedge fund, Bridgewater, in the U.S. I went and got or pursued a PhD in artificial intelligence in Spain. Became a management consultant for McKinsey for about six and a half years. And then joined uh, Santander uh, about two years ago. That's quite a, uh, an interesting leap between McKinsey and Santander. What, what was the most most people sort of go uh, go go bank or go industry and then go into management consulting? What was the the sort of decision to go from uh, sort of consulting the other way? So I think a a really good opportunity. I think you know the, the running running in ventures is a dream come true. Honestly, I think you know the ability to place bets on where the industry is to, is going, be able to create change within the organization and, and just have, you know, build better things in a way is is much more fun than being a consultant. You actually get to do things here. It's a very hands-on, tangible job, right? We spend money and then we create commercial relationships with the companies and then we get to build something for our customers. Uh, it's much better than just, you know, sort of building PowerPoints. <laughs> Yeah, I think the, uh, the the days of uh, PowerPoint sort of propping up consultancies have ho- are hopefully passed, haven't they, in terms of doing it. Pa- Pascal, you, you possibly have one of the longest LinkedIn profiles I've ever come across in terms of doing it. And That's I think because that, he's old. Is it? <laughs> no, I think it just attests to the amount of places that you've you've kind of engaged with and the um, the sort of board member roles and, and uh, advisor capacities that you've had across things. It's um, pretty impressive in terms of the, the reading through the, the, the years. Thank you, thank you. I actually started in banking many eons ago, many moons ago, um, as a commercial banker back in Europe. I worked for uh, a variety of banks, French banks, Japanese banks. Japanese banks at the time were Japanese banks, still had capital and uh, and cash to dole out, uh, both in terms of lending and uh, equity investments. Moved from commercial banking to merchant banking, still in Europe. And, and then gravitated towards the uh, United States for graduate studies. Worked on Wall Street for uh, a little while. And then after looking at all these years in, uh, uh, in banking and uh, in asset management, uh, decided that I wanted, I wanted to have real operating and operational experience uh, other than sitting behind a desk and looking at a uh, trading floor or looking at uh, financials to uh, figure out a, a, a credit risk. So I moved to the, uh, to the West Coast, moved to the Rockies, and uh, worked with startups. 
technology startups, software, software services, literally employee number two, three, or four, raising uh, uh, money, building a business. Uh, I also did some uh, post-revenue, high-growth uh, startups in the technology field. You know, the kind of the story which you start at two or three million revenue run rate and you end up at 30 uh, within a three or four-year uh, period. And then as I moved back to the East Coast, I got back into uh, the financial services industry. And for the past now seven, almost eight years, I've been investing in financial services. The f- last five years of these uh, eight years have been actually in, in, in fintech, where I uh, was a general partner for a uh, fund on the, uh, uh, on the East Coast. And then loving it so much, uh, having that, uh, dare I say, a marriage of like the operational uh, experience that I've had as well as the investing and the you know, banking experience that I've had, I felt was very suited to uh, continuing as a venture capital investor. Joined forces with Mariano probably a little over a year ago uh, or a little less than a year ago as a venture partner for InnoVentures, and uh, um, it's, uh, it's been a blast that he supports me, I support him, and, uh, and, and uh, I think that the team We're is uh, doing great, great things. <laughs> I sense the real feeling in that, Mariano. That was, uh, that, that was nice. So, so I guess, you know, that sort of brings us to the now, really. So what, give us a bit of background of, of what the, the, the Santander Fund is. How, was, how did this come around? So about two and a half years ago, when our chairwoman was still CEO of Santander UK, She sort of came to the realization that we had spent the better part of a decade focused on getting out of the crisis and dealing with regulation. And we had effectively missed a step with regards to, you know, what our customers want, how they want it, how they behave, and what they expect from us. Uh, And so we needed to not only catch up, but, you know, sort of get to the forefront of that trend. And... Uh, with the with the sort of you know knowledge of experience that banks in general are not good or quick enough to deliver some of that innovation, mm-hmm. so the decision was that we needed to actually partner with companies, and uh, the good way of doing that was by you know putting a bit of skin in the game, so investing in these companies, trying to make a bit of money, but effectively, you know, using that investment as an enabler for a broader. Uh, collaboration. So the fund was created two years ago out of the UK, out of her office here, uh, when she moved back to Madrid in November of 2014. It was spun out as an independent unit uh, fully owned by the bank, and we created the team in, in here in London, and we just you know started investing with the idea that we would select the best companies out there that could improve the value proposition that Santander has. Uh, to its clients and bring value to our customers, bring value to the companies, learn in the process, and hopefully make a bit of money. And what does that entail sort of on a day-to-day basis? I must imagine, you know, the point where, you know, fintechs are away, you've got a $100 million to spend, you must have a kind of a a reasonably orderly queue formed outside the building just to talk to you. Is that pretty much how it goes on a day-to-day basis? I think think it is. I think I would probably say that, broadly speaking, we have two roles – the external role, which is effectively what you described. I don't remember the you know the stats for this year, but last year, 2015, we looked at 1,084 companies, wow. I think, during the year. This, this year is probably, you know, uh, roughly the same, if not more. So a good chunk of time is just sort of, you know, sifting through that, and we have a really strong team mm-hmm. that does that. And then the other half of the time we spend it 
finding the internal opportunities, you know, the right sponsors, the right ideas, the right problems to attack by creating these, uh, you know, bank fintech partnerships. Oh, it's, a, it's an interesting one. I, I can see, you know, like I say, it's a, it's a different approach, shall we say, than, than some of the organizations have, have taken, haven't they? Not many have been so bold to have a, a kind of a, a separate um, a separate unit. unit. But it, So this runs as a completely separate P&L to the Santa, uh, Santander Group? It does, yes. Yeah. Hmm. So it's a great, you know, very, say, very different step, shall we say? Yeah. What what types of things have you been looking to invest in then? Because I, I guess as as part of this is you being separate from it, you're not, I guess, necessarily exactly tied to the to the strategy of the of the group. Or is there a, a kind of a, a I guess a, a vested interest here in terms of the types of companies you're looking at with the strategic direction? How, how much can we view the the investments that you've made as the direction that Santander is going for? As an example, so I think. You know, we are independent, so we get to almost set our own course. But at the same time, that course is fairly intertwined with I would, a combination of the strategy of the bank, but also uh, the real and tangible opportunity that we see. Mm. Right? Uh, we wouldn't invest in things that we don't see that we would that, that don't have a an uptake within the bank, right? We wouldn't invest in things that are pie in the sky, or sometimes we would, but you know, minor, minor investments. We try to focus our big bets in co- in things that we see as tangible value for the companies and for us. You know, and again, I talked about this a bit earlier, but Ripple, I think, is a good example of of that situation. Cabbage is a great example of a great company that we partner with to create a new product for our small business clients here in the UK. So we looked at everything and anything in fintech because Santander is a huge group, global presence. It's present in pretty much every single business from consumer finance, retail, corporate, co- commercial and corporate banking and capital markets. So pretty much an insurance. So we've, we've covered uh, everything I think there is to cover under the sun. I think the first year was characterized by let's call it low-hanging fruit, sort of the most obvious things that we thought could be attacked, like lending uh, or payments. Uh, we recently invested in SigFix, so wealth management as well. And I, th- I think this second year where we double down with the, with the fund is focused now on, on more um, emerging opportunities. So we're going to focus a lot in Latin America mm-hmm. as you know, sort of a growth area. Uh, we are very excited about uh, what's going on in, in uh, artificial intelligence. We remain cautious, I think, because there's a lot of noise and I think there's a lot of hype, but definitely a technology that will transform the mm. way banks do things. Mm. What else? What are the other topics that we're looking at? Identity, definitely a big one. Bank as a service uh, yeah. being, a, uh, being another. I, you know, I, I, before joining as a venture partner, I was general partner for a traditional VC or a VC that was not associated with a, a strategic, right, or corporate sponsor. So that, that has given me over the past year a fairly unique uh, vantage point. And, and I have to say that, uh, you know, being a corporate venture uh, capital uh, firm comes with um, a blessing and, and with a curse. Mm. The blessing is that incredible breadth and depth of knowledge that you can draw from uh, from within the, uh, uh, the group, right? Uh, all of the uh, uh, business lines, uh, the technologists, the innovation people within each part of the of the bank that allows us to be much more informed 
than a lot of uh, investors that look at the uh, fintech space um, and allows us to make re- really smart decisions investing and then post-investing from a portfolio management point of view. And then the curse is that you know we are all well-informed. <laughs> and so the threshold is so much higher for us and, and for the bank where we have to go really in-depth and, and try to understand how innovative, disruptive, and also how a technology or how a business model will fit within a particular canvas which we are working with, i.e. the bank as it uh, stands today, and more importantly as it, uh, we want to uh, uh, you know, get it o- over the next uh, five or ten years. Uh, that's fairly unique. That makes for uh, work that is uh, rewarding, but you know, m- more difficult, more arduous than, uh, than a uh, a normal VC fund, I, I think. And I think that's quite an interesting, you know, given your perspective on both sides of that. Have you seen any difference from the the startups with regards to, you know, is a million pounds or a million dollars from a, an independent VC and a million dollars or a million pounds from a corporate VC the same in terms of the either the investment or the... Because I guess there's a, a pressure if you're invested in from a corporate VC to be implemented into that that uh, corporate environment to to almost kind of back that through isn't it you your your investment stands as a kind of a credibility stamp i guess in terms of doing it don't you from and that you know it's um, not wanting to sort of quote spider-man too much in this sense but it's uh, you know the the power of that comes with a quite a lot of responsibility doesn't it yeah i think the industry has evolved quite a bit over the past two years i think when we started Corporate VCs were looked at with the old lens of, you know, corporate VCs screw up everything and they're not good partners, they always want path to control, they're, they're the dumb money, they don't really add value. Back when, you know, what I call the fintech 1.0 of, 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 of fintech, where, you know, was banks versus, or fintechs versus banks, okay. I think as we progress into fintech 2.0, into fintechs with banks and the whole collaboration idea, the perception of corporate venture capital changed radically. I think, you know, whereas our first trip to, to Silicon Valley, the first or second meeting at a fairly large fund, the partner on the other side of the table said, remind me, Santander does what? Uh, evolved into now getting calls that, you know, some of the best VCs in the space, you know, asking us what do we think about such and such deal or would we be interested in participating and and sort of getting, you know, rooming being made in the fund in the round for us to mm-hmm. to participate. I so guess I've, part sorry, part of that is you know proving it, right? You know, the smart moves, smart investments. It kind of leads to people sort of coming to you with uh, with that type of thing, doesn't it? So, yeah. I mean, there are plenty of VCs that will uh, screw up a startup. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I've seen them in uh, in action. So you know, both on the CVC and the uh, and the VC side, as a startup, you have to pick the right partner to uh, get in bed uh, with for the next seven, eight years sometimes, assuming that the, uh, the startup is, uh, is successful. So there's a right way of doing things on both sides of the equation, and you know, the costs are as severe if you don't choose that uh, well. I don't think that is there's necessarily any stigmata that is associated you know, specifically to, it, uh, to a CVC, for sure. Sure. And as you say, Mariano, you've just literally doubled down, haven't you? So you've gone from a $100 million investment to a $200 million investment. What's the, what's the need to sort of um, up the ante? So I think it's a number of things. I think that uh, we projected that we would run out of capital by the end of this year, more or less, considering sort of, you know, uh, reserves and whatnot. And 
the banks, I think the bank is liking what we do. I think we've had a couple of you know early successes with some of our portfolio companies and the work we've done with them. And uh, the desire for us to sort of go beyond and explore or work more in geographies where Santander is present, right? Whereas we always said we were a global fund. Effectively, it was hard for us to focus on the main uh, geographies and the less developed ecosystems like Latin America, uh, you know, with the same intent or, 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 or effectiveness. Now the idea is, hey, now let's, you know, here's, a, here's more money, go and explore and, and take it beyond the, you know, this year one uh, experience. I think in many ways it's a reflection of the fact that this fintech journey that we're in is in the early innings, really early innings. Fintech 1.0 and maybe 1.5 to 2.0 was about investing in um, business models that digitize underwriting, distribution, and, uh, and sales, right? The, f the front end of a business slash technology stack. But there's much more to do, right? You have the uh, middle office workflows and processes. You have the back end that uh, needs to be rehauled in a comprehensive way. So it, not only is it, as Mariano says, touching on more geographies within the group, but it's also going deeper uh, within the uh, within the stack and, uh, and finding the right technologies, the right startups as partners that are going to help the, uh, the, the bank uh, uh, going forward. You know, from a meta point of view, you look at financial services as a percentage of world GDP. That's like 16 to 17 percent, depending on the year and how exuberant capital markets are, right? That's 16 to 17 trillion dollars, right? So many more investments over the next 10, 15 years to bring uh, the entire industry up to a point where it's really in the digital age, mm -hmm. and which means that you know, for any given uh, bank, tier one bank, global tier one bank like at, uh, Santander, uh, to not stop in the, uh, uh, at, the first, uh, at the first step or the first tranche. And I think it's a logical um, uh, development. Mm. It feels, um, you know, the, the, the sort of uh, FinTech 2 piece that you put out about sort of collaboration, it, it doesn't feel like everybody's quite at that level of sort of sophistication in terms of, I, I think there's still quite a lot of skies falling mentality when it comes to, you know, fear of FinTech, fear of that type of change in terms of where we're going. You know, does that, is that reflecting Santander's understanding of the market? You know, ha have we got to the point now where, where Santander is actually at the, the view where they can make these types of investments and things like cabbage, they can integrate it into what they're doing as a business. You know, this feels like a, this feels like a shift in the way that, that banking operates, really, in terms of doing it. So, fully agree with you. I think there are huge differences in terms of how banks are approaching this. Even culturally, you know, recently we visited a geography, and I won't mention which one, and a couple of local entrepreneurs said, wow, you actually partner with companies? Banks here don't do that, right? <laughs> so I think we're lucky uh, to, you know, be working in the organization that we work at because that has, that, that belief is entrenched in our top executive team, mm -hmm. and they believe that it is a model that, that, that should definitely be explored you know, much, much uh, further and deeper. I don't like saying integrate into because I don't think that's the end game. I think it's a much more hybrid thing. I think banks will adapt to to allow to, to allow new models to good banks will will change in a way that they will allow uh, new companies to permeate what they do. And so I don't think integrate integrating a, a, a new shiny thing into an old legacy thing is probably not the best way of going at, uh, about it, right? So 
but but yes, I think I think we have come to the conclusion that for certain opportunities, the best way to go about capturing them is partnering with someone who's agile, more agile, who has a better understanding of what the customers are expect, expecting, and who can very effectively leverage our scale, our brand, our clients, and, and, and create something collectively better. Mm. No, I agree. I think it, I think it's interesting that the, the nature of this is is evolving, isn't it? And I, and I think both in terms of the startup side of things, with with regards to the fintechs and what they're looking for, and and actually how as as sort of corporate VCs, the the mentality and the the sophistication is improving. It, it feels like the whole industry is sort of growing up to a certain degree, doesn't it? Which yeah, personally I think is a is a great thing because arguably when all of the different parties are a, a bit more sophisticated about what, how they're going about it, then actually the results of this is going to be better, which for me is going to be a better customer experience, a better engagement, a, a much greater level of financial services for people. So, you know, is that where we're seeing it? Is the, is the industry just becoming much more sophisticated about how this whole thing works? I, I don't know if it's the industry as a whole. I think there are players who see the... who have come to the realization that things are changing and are reacting in certain ways. Others are taking different bets, and then there's a third group that just are tearing the headlights. Mm. As with any major change or disruption in, in, in an industry, I would like to believe that we are pursuing the right model and that it will sort of yield, as you said, sort of better, more sophisticated products for our customers. And, and how are you guys sort of avoiding that? Because obviously there's a, you know, there's a huge amount of innovation sort of PR exercise departments that have been set up in you know various different industries and you know there are a lot of kind of magic beans and sort of shiny things coming along and obviously I, I guess I can probably predict the answer of this but um, you know how are you guys really sort of getting to the what should be invested in and and really what is the you know this year's Emperor's New Clothes? So we try to focus on real tangible opportunities and we as Pascal was saying before we really leverage the bank to do that if someone in the retail division says hey we need you know there's a huge opportunity to serve small business lending if we get a better platform then that's our cue to find someone like cabbage right so we place bets on that we don't place bets on the emperor's new clothes right we don't place bets on hype or trend the other thing that i would say is i see a lot of banks announcing what they intend to do just to be the first to say, yes, we are doing X. We have a very strict uh, comms policy that we never talk about what we're going to do. We always talk about what we did. So we only talked about Cabbage when we had done the first pilot. We didn't talk about Ripple until we actually had the app running. And I think that, in a way, allows us to focus on what actually has potential to happen rather than what will show on the you know on the on Twitter or you know the FT or what have you yeah, yeah. but that's a cer- certainly a, uh, a very uh, valid point right We've, Mariano talked about uh, artificial intelligence it's uh, it's a fairly wide space an open space right and many banks have already uh, declared through PR that they are going to they're about to right we haven't but we've spent the better part of the, the last nine months. Mm-hmm. 
looking at the space, uh, looking at what is interesting from an investment point of view and how it can be applied uh, commercially. So the announcements are going to be made at the, at the back end of that process when we, uh, when we have something tangible. I think I've, I've seen the, the, the fun quote on this one quite a lot. It's like um, banks in innovation, like teenagers and sex. There's a lot of talking about it and not a lot of doing it, but um, it's an interesting one to, uh, to maybe leave on. What one, I, I guess one last piece of advice that you give is obviously you guys see lots of pictures from you know, many different um, fintechs coming through in terms of what, what, you, what you see. Other than the obvious, you know, come in with a million dollar uh, or a billion dollar idea in terms of doing it, what, what piece of advice would you give a, a fintech pitching for investment? My advice is you have to you have to act your age. So uh, when your seed company pitch me you know, the right KPIs, the right narrative, and the right vision for a seed company moving to being a you know a Series A company, and so on and so forth, there are the worst mistake that uh, one can make is come to a, uh, a venture investor and say you know. I'm at this stage. I'm I'm now 21 years old, where you're actually 15, mm. um, and that that shows me that you don't have the contextual awareness of what you need to do now and for the next 12 months after I've invested in you, um, and that that you know, probably means that uh, you're not the right vehicle for me to uh, to invest in. So it's a it's a, a dynamic process contextually with the right understanding of uh, where you are and where you're going. I would add uh, probably two things. One is do your homework. Um, one of the questions we ask in our website to allow you to uh, pitch something to us is how do you think Santander can help you beyond the investment? If you pitch me in Bitcoin exchange in Singapore, I, I won't even bother to answer the email. right? So figure out if we are the right partner for you and come prepared to have a smart discussion around you know, what's the opportunity for us to help you and what's the opportunity for you to help us? Mm. That, that's, I think, uh, one. And then the other is sort of related to your homework is understand what the problem space that you're trying to attack is. If you come to me with the idea of creating a digital bank that will, will do onboarding on some segment of the population that has challenges with ID and you don't understand that you need a compliance officer and a KYC AML program first and foremost, then we have nothing to talk about. Mm. Right, so I think we see, as I said before, thousands of companies per year. 80% of those, we just can kill in 30 seconds because we say this guy doesn't really understand the business or this guy doesn't really understand that we are not a good fit for him. We are not the, the investors that he needs. Um, and I think that that's critical. You know, the, the good companies have a thorough understanding of what we can do for them, and they understand the real challenges they're trying to solve. The UX is a good part of what they're trying to solve, but there's so much in the background that if they don't get it, they will fail. Mm -hmm. that, that, you know, it, it's, 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 it allows us to do very quick triage by looking at those markers. Great. Okay. So... Act your age and uh, do your homework. It sounds like uh, good advice for a teenager and good advice for a fintech startup. So, uh, Mariano, Pascal, thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate it. Where can the listeners hear a little bit more about uh, what the fund is doing? Where, where can they find you? Twitter. Um, we tend to tweet about everything and anything we do. Sun in Adventures is the handle for the fund. Mine is Berlin Mad and yours is... Pascal Bouvier. 
Yeah. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much, guys, for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you. I'm here with Shamia Karkul, Head of Open APIs from BBVA. For our audience and FinTech Insider listeners, can you tell us who you are? What do you do? Sure. So maybe I should just start off with uh, my, my own background. Uh, I grew up in South India, in Bangalore, actually. Became a software engineer in the 90s, just like a lot of uh, people from that generation. Came over to the U.S. in uh, 2003, went to business school at Carnegie Mellon, then spent a few years at McKinsey as a consultant. It was in the summer of 2009 where my friend from business school, a guy called Josh Reich, reached out to me and started chatting about banking and finance and eventually suggested that I should start a retail bank with him which was a bit of a surprise. I mean, as a consultant in Europe in 2009, I had more experience shutting down banks than starting them. <laughs> uh, but it, 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 it just seemed such a compelling vision because he had realized and sort of jointly came to this realization that banks weren't de- delivering to the expectations of a particular segment of customers, basically digitally native, younger customers who were doing everything online and were already beginning to do everything that they could on the mobile, but those experiences just hadn't caught up. And also there was this large gap where the whole banking model was built around, essentially around customer confusion. And that the more customers were confused, the more money banks made out of that to things like overdraft fees. And we just realized that there was an opportunity to build from the ground up a digitally native banking experience, which solved customers' problems and then aligned their interests with that of the of the bank and uh, and made money that way. So we set out on that journey in 2009, ended up launching Simple in the summer of 2012. And from there, grew nicely and were acquired by BBVA in 2014. And that's kind of how I came to know BBVA. Uh, soon after the acquisition, I was in, in Madrid meeting some of the senior executives there. And one of them told me about this idea they had of building an API platform. And I was like, yes, mm-hmm. somebody should do that. And it should be BBVA because the world needs it. And you guys are the most tech forward, you know, the, the most vision in the top management that I found of any global bank. And so you guys should really do it. But please make sure you do it right and don't screw it up in, mm-hmm. in all these ways. And, and he was like, oh. I'm, I'm really not the guy, you should go talk to somebody else. And, you know, this this uh, this got, kind of got kicked off then. And there was an internal ventures team which was working on it and reached out to me and asked me to be an advisor. And through this process of saying yes, I eventually just uh, ended up running it about uh, 10 months ago. And really the vision is to build an API platform which with the mission of being the, a trusted platform for financial innovators globally. Mm. Uh, we, we know that there's a huge explosion of financial innovation happening across the globe, but definitely in the US and in the UK. We have a lot of capabilities within the bank, uh, whether that's in technology, compliance, risk, uh, our understanding of particular customer segments. We want to bring all of that as a service to help these innovators sort of combine that with their own uh, capabilities and build much better experiences for our end customers. I think you said something really interesting there. You said doing it right. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it's in vogue at the moment after PSD2 for everybody to be talking about APIs. And indeed, through 11FS, we speak to a lot of organizations who are like, yeah, we're doing APIs too. Mm-hmm. I've got one of those. And it's kind of like, it, this isn't something you collect. It's something you do right. You know, it, it, this isn't something that's a tick box. There's there's an yes. art here. There's a skill. 
And, and I look at organizations like Twilio as being like the benchmark for how to do APIs well, but uh, it might be really helpful if you describe what an API platform is in layman's terms, because I, I talk to a lot of executives who go, well, I've been doing APIs since the 80s. I know all about APIs. And it's like, no, there's something really different here. What's different now about open platforms? So, and, and what you said, or what you hear from those execs is definitely true. An API isn't anything special. I mean, you can think of a pretty much any way of connecting two computer systems as an API. What's changing is when you look at the technology world and the transformations that are happening there, I'll, I'll pick Facebook as an example. You know, they launched a product which was very successful and reached probably 100 million customers. And then they built an API platform attached to that product. And but the API platform probably drove their success for the last billion customers. And it is now accepted wisdom in the technology world that you don't just build a product anymore. You build a product with a platform attached. And if you don't, eventually your product will be replaced by an equivalent product from a competitor probably, which also has a platform attached. And the, the goal behind the platform is not just to build APIs. You can build APIs, the old-fashioned, I don't know, Corba, process calls <laughs> uh, if you know God bless COBOL <laughs> yes uh, or, but or you can build them with you know modern uh, REST over HTTP JSON style architecture modern architectures are more easy to use than the traditional ones but the, the secret sauce isn't in just building an API the secret sauce is in building a set of ways for innovators and end customers to connect into your capabilities and that's the API is one piece of it but what's also, what also ha needs to be there sort of behind the API is to package up your capabilities as a service. And those capabilities are not just the technology. They also include the, you know, all the things that banks do well, uh, which is compliance, risk management, uh, customer service to some extent at least, and you know, just the legal and regulatory world. This is what makes banking different. Yeah. This is what banks know how to do. You have to bring all of that, just having APIs internally may potentially be useful to you, but doesn't solve a problem for anybody out there. Just exposing APIs externally without giving, without making them easy to use and uh, is, is also, you know, fairly useless. Mm -hmm. uh, and how do you make them easy to use, which is do the hard stuff and do it well and expose that as a service. And when you bring that together with an API, that's where you're building something that's really uh, transformative. And I think it also should be uh, a business. I mean, uh, if you look at, again, at the examples from the from the technology world, there are a plethora of APIs and different types of APIs and API platforms. But it's clear that they are massively transformational, whether it's the Facebook API, the Twitter API, the Salesforce API, Amazon's multiple platforms, whether it's AWS or the Marketplace. Or, or Google, right? And these, so you can you can pick what type of platform and sort of, you know, what, what how you build it. But it is a a business. I see it almost as like being a way to invite entrepreneurs to scale your platform for you and to scale your existing organizational competencies on on your behalf. There's a great statistic I saw that Salesforce I think has around you know 50,000 engineers that they, that they have employed, which is quite a significant number. But they they count in their developer community over 500,000 engineers that are adding value to their platform. That is a 10x multiple 
in terms of engineering talent working on their platform, which is which is huge. But that all falls apart when you have a compliance process that takes six weeks. So a developer has to send off a piece of paper, wait for it to come in the post and sign it, or has to go out and buy a hardware security module that costs $25,000 before they can use your API. So doing solving those problems is hard. It's interesting, you talked about making it a business as well. You know, what is the upside to an organization like a bank to really getting APIs right? You know, can, can you grow here? Can you grow your platform? Is that what you guys really see as, as the upside for yourselves? I think so. I, mean, I think uh, the, the, this is going to be massively transformational to the whole banking industry. I mean, that's true of sort of the fintech revolution that we are living in uh, as well. And I think the platforms are, are coming and are going to, to be part of that. Maybe the best way of sort of understanding what is the potential here is to look at examples in the technology industry where you have AWS, which has transformed the cloud infrastructure market or the, you know, the Facebook and the, or the Twitter APIs. The, the real capability here is that there's always going to be much more external innovation than internal innovation, just because you, as a bank, cannot be, no matter how innovative you are, you can't be everything to everybody. And so how do you leverage that external innovation to essentially, you know, feed off your capabilities and grab some of the that capability and that market? So it's really, for a, for a bank, it's, or a any financial institution really it's a way of saying how do you be part of that revolution and how do you both engage with it power it and then derive value for yourself from it now exactly how you derive value is very dependent on the specifics of your business your market and the apis and 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 what you're doing and again there's many many examples many different types of platforms that you could be building so i it's, it's kind of hard to say that this is there's one solution there's probably us a solution for everybody and maybe multiple solutions out there. That makes total sense. So as an example, uh, you announced uh, that you guys are uh, provided access to Dwalla. Uh, so Dwalla, a famous uh, US peer-to-peer payments company, to one of your own APIs. Can you tell us a little bit how that came about and, and kind of you know how that works and, and how that might help the ecosystem at large? Definitely. Walla, as you said, is a is a payment startup in the U.S. Uh, they do P2P payments. They also power a bunch of other parties to use their platform uh, to process payments. We started talking to them, I think, over two years ago now, um, before I came on board, really. And what they do is they plug into our U.S. APIs and uh, and for our common customers, so those who are customers of Compass in the U.S. and also uh, customers of Dwala, they allow you to plug into Dwala and, and essentially enable real-time payments. Now, that, that's kind of the whole sort of focus of Dwala is making payments more seamless across the, you know, across the U.S. and, and, and really creating a, a way to do real-time payments. Mm-hmm. They need to connect directly into multiple banks to do that because there isn't really a retail real-time payments API, uh, payment system in the U.S. So they, we use something called three-legged OAuth, so a, a customer can uh, connect into, uh, like they, they can log into Dwala, mm-hmm. say, hey, I want to connect my Compass account with Dwala, uh, click on a button that sends them to a, uh, to a, to a little you know, uh, page where they put in their username and password, but that's their Compass username and password, which comes to us. Mm-hmm. And they never have to share that with Dwala. We then authenticate that, we check with them that they want to share this particular type of data mm-hmm. and transaction capabilities with 
Dwala or with any third party, Dwala is just one example. Once they approve that, then we give Dwala a token which allows them for a period of time to get access to that customer's account and be able to move money to enable this real-time payments. I, I think OAuth is a, is a really interesting thing. Uh, this, for, for example, it's like when you use the login with Twitter or the login with Facebook button. It's, um, you know, it, it's not only using the application you're logging into, but it's calling out to Facebook. I think what would give people a lot of comfort is knowing that when I'm doing something with Dwala, I'm also getting BBVA standing behind it and saying, yes, BBVA has authorized this too, yeah. which is which is a really, you know, for, for the geeks out there listening, definitely check out three-legged OAuth. And if you're doing anything with APIs, I think that's a really important tip. And, and I think the Dwala example is interesting. Can you give me examples of live APIs you've got and how people might use them? Because I think often the subject comes to life and we tend to talk about the technology, but we don't talk about the, the customer journeys. So I'm a customer of BBVA. What can I, what could somebody build for me or what has somebody built for me that didn't exist before that now exists? Sure. So you can go check out our public APIs at www.bbvaapimarket.com. We have APIs, you know, they're they're publicly uh, available. You can uh, view the documentation both in the US and in Spain. I'll characterize them sort of broadly. There's the specifics are different in those countries are different and the payment systems are different. Uh, but what they do is essentially that. They, uh, they're BBVA Connect, like Facebook Connect. They use OAuth 2.1, I think, just like uh, pretty much that's the latest standard. You, it allows people to get access to uh, existing BBVA customers in Spain and the U.S., get access to their profile information, their, their account uh, balances, uh, transaction history, and payments capabilities. So when they're getting access to these things, it's the customer themselves that gets to say, I give this third-party access. Exactly. So it's, it's, only when a, it's only when I as a customer or a listener as a customer said, I would like this new service that's doing something amazing for me to have my transaction information, for example. Exactly. So it's the, the, the experience across sort of all of these APIs is it starts with the end customer saying, uh, I want to work with a uh, I want to use the, an application from this third party. The third party has, of course, already connected into our APIs and gone through our processes um, to sort of uh, verify them. So they use that third party app like a baller. It sends, it securely verifies that that customer is a BBVA customer. The customer approves to BBVA that he or she wants to grant access to this third party and exactly what they are granting access to. And once it's granted, then that third party gets access to those resources, essentially, and can use them for a certain period of time. And that's and, and those are the sort of things that are available is, as I said, profile information, tra- transaction history, balance history, and the ability to make payments. In many ways, these are exactly what PSD2 mandates in Europe uh, in 2018. Now, PSD2 is still in a, you know, still evolving and there's no technical standards defined yet mm-hmm. but as long as those technical standards for example that technical standard was OAuth then we would be PSD2 compliant today. Interesting so it, you, you raise an interesting point there that um, you know, now compliance in Europe is pushing for these services to be available but it, I suspect you know, whenever compliance pushes for something usually the net result is that a bank produces something that's the least worst it can do not the best it can do. And, and therefore, uh, you know, BBVA really being out in front in this one um, kind of gives you um, some a different insight because you see this as a business, you see this as an opportunity, not something you have to do. So, so it begs the question, what lessons have you learned in this journey? What, what has really come out for you and stood out as being 
you know, these are the things that if we did it again, we'd do differently, or these are the things that you should know about, or um, here's just some good advice for doing it right. That's a good question. One thing I think that we did right from sort of fairly early on is not to treat this as a, as a compliance requirement, for example, for, from, a, from a PhD2 perspective, or to treat it as an engineering project. I mean, it has those elements as well, of course, but this is for us as an, an independent business, and it is something that we think will be transformational to the broader ecosystem, but also definitely to us as a bank as well. Of course, just like any other bank, uh, we are also on this digital transformation journey, but we think this is going to be a, a, an important and key part of that. So I would, I would say that's one piece of advice is, is don't think of it as I need to build APIs. No, this is a business. So think of it from that way. Who are the customers? What's the value proposition to them? How are you? What what services and products are you offering to them? Mm-hmm. And 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 start from that to sort of then get into you know the, the APIs are just one piece of that solution. Yeah. The other thing I will say is that it is it's it's very important to to work with what we think of as kind of the control functions, which is you know compliance, risk, uh, legal, regulatory, uh, and and sort of work with all of them as part of this business building because in many ways the value that you're providing to these third-party developers and these you know fintech startups innovators is that you're doing not just the technology or payment processing you're also doing compliance and compliance as a service risk as a service mm-hmm. legal as a service regulatory as a service you're packaging all of that into a service and saying here is how you have an idea or a vision or a, or a capability that you want to access Here's the defined steps that make that possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel that, or remember that very personally, because if you remember the introduction, I mean, Josh and I started trying to build Simple back in, uh, I mean, we quit our jobs in early 2010. And it took us two and a half years to go from quitting our jobs to actually launching Simple. Mm-hmm. And so much of that was figuring it how, out how we could get a bank partner and a processor to work together and then build all of this sort of back end so that we could then build our experience on top of that, which was, you know, what we exposed to customers. So much of that could have been, you know, if we had a platform like what we're building now, we could probably have done that in, say, nine months or maybe six rather than two and a half years. So it could really unleash a lot of different digital propositions for a new generation of consumer. But actually, so long as the banks are holding that float on their balance sheet, from their perspective, it's an, it's an acquired customer. It doesn't, you know, and there is a strategic question about: Do you need it to be your brand all the time? Which kind of begs the question: Then, kind of, who's the customer here? Is the customer the fintech developer? Is the customer new um, kind of uh, consumers being on your platform, but not necessarily having a brand relationship with them? Because uh, I think there's a lot of heartburn that that distinction causes. And, and again, I look at tech companies who might have done this well. Where did you guys come down on that? I mean, if, if somebody's using um, an organization like Simple for sake of argument that hadn't been acquired by BBVA, you know, some other organization comes along, but BBVA is the platform. Is there a branding thing that you guys insist on with those companies? Where, where do you guys stand on that? Well, in the three-legged OAuth flow, for example, the, the end customer has to have an account at BBVA of mm-hmm. some sort or, or, or some sort of product or whichever, whatever is being accessed. So those resources have to be there. Uh, but in, in general, we don't prescribe how the APIs should be used, mm-hmm. right? So we, we, we're not requiring people, for example, to, uh, to sort of... Uh, put the BBVA brand. Now there's, 
there's a bunch of compliance requirements depending on how, you know, like when you're using the FDIC logo in the US. And so those aren't sort of necessarily our restrictions, but just sort of defined by how the product or the the service works that they kind of have to be there. And we're figuring out much of this as we go along. Mm -hmm. But in sort of general, we, we have... APIs, we have a set of capabilities, we're exposing that to the market, and we aren't being prescriptive about how they're being used beyond the compliance and legal requirements that are intrinsic to this business. Absolutely, and I think one of the interesting questions for me looking at this and, and is, is how do you take those traditional internal-only manual compliance and control processes and start to automate them for a wider audience? Because the, if you've potentially got this network of developers um, you've potentially scaled up your business, but also you've done it in a way where you probably can't push that much through the, the pipeline of those control teams. You need to grow those control teams by 10x to cope with all this new demand. So is there a process re-engineering element to what you guys have done behind the scenes to, to really make this work? And, and how do you see that? I mean, that's the short answer is, is yes. Uh, that's that is, the ball game, right? That is that is actually the, the the probably the hardest part of this in many ways, and probably the the, the most work involved as well. Is is those sort of as you said, those control functions have to scale massively, and we and this is not a surprise to banks in general. I mean, everybody feels the the need to sort of uh, sort of the regulatory environment we live in is, is forcing growth in in compliance risk and legal and all these things, but. It's not just about that. It's about how to do it better and how to do it different because we're talking about a different customer. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're not, you know, banks typically have end customers like, you know, retail or small business and they have a bunch of vendors who are, you know, processors or what have you. They aren't used to working with innovators or Mm -hmm. startups uh, and they don't know, is that an end customer? Is that a vendor? Do I apply my vendor management process? And the answer to all of this is, not quite. <laughs> <laughs> which is difficult because it doesn't fit in a neat box on a spreadsheet somewhere. Which is... is also an opportunity because you can build a new box on a spreadsheet somewhere <laughs> and, uh, and define that box to work in a particular way, yeah. which is appropriate to that box. Trying to shove that sort of a, a, a customer or a relationship into an existing box is probably not a good idea. That's, that's very interesting. So one of the, our slogans at 11FS is digital banking is 1% done. And, and I think uh, you know, the digital element of APIs or the, you know, the technology element is 1% of the story. Um, maybe 9% of it is proposition and then 90% of it is what, um, the, you know, the new buzzword is reg tech or regulation technology. If, if 90% of it is figuring out that process, that's probably got to be one of your key hurdles. So I think um, you know, that's been tremendously interesting from my perspective. Is there anything else from our audience that you'd like to share? Is there anything they should know about um, BBVA's Open API platform before we, before we sign off today? I would say uh, go check out the website. It's currently invite only, but you can request an invitation and we give those out pretty freely. Uh, we're looking to get as many users in this closed alpha stage that we are in before we go into a, a broader uh, uh, release. And uh, we're sort of interested in getting as many people on the platform and getting as much usage and is learning ourselves. I mean, we're just at the start of this journey and I think it's it's going to be awesome. And I said this before, I think it's going to be transformational. Well, Shami, uh, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. 
So with us today we have Neil Cross from DBS in Singapore. Neil, uh, thank you for joining us and, and thank you uh, for joining us especially because you've just been named the world's most innovative CIO. So we have a couple of questions for you but first and foremost, congratulations. How did, how did that come about? Uh, uh, yeah, it's really, it, it's like a dream in fairness. It hasn't sunk in even though it's been a few weeks and you know, I, got, I got approached by the organisation Talent Unleashed and they said we'd like you to apply. So I applied and, and thought nothing of it. And about six weeks later, they said I'm in the uh, Asia Pacific finals, and uh, and and so I, you know, I went for that, and um, and I won that, which was which is pretty amazing. Um, in fairness, I did party too hard in Melbourne that night, and I did lose the award. Um, <laughs> really? That that is that's pretty rock and roll right there, isn't it? In terms of uh, partying so hard, you couldn't find the award the next day. That's that's good going. Yeah, yeah, I had to email them the next day and say, hey, you know you said I was really disruptive. Um, I kind of uh, lost the award. But the, anyway, so, <laughs> uh, so they're making me another one, which, which is nice to have that shortly. And um, and then so I had to go for the final, which was a live pitch to the uh, uh, number of judges, including uh, Steve Wozniak. And um, I did my pitch, and, um, you know, the kind of comments from Steve Wozniak was, was very humble, you know, and uh, thinks a lot about developing you know, students, bank staff, startups, and um, and from Richard Branson, it was very much that I've involved so many people in the business of innovation. I mean, we're doing 5,000 people, so the core of the entire bank will do an innovation or design engagement this year. And uh, and the fact that I do it, you know, and it's in a bank, which was he was quite amazed about. Um, so yeah. Great feedback. You know, it, it really, it's not an award for me anyway. It's an award, it's sort of award for my team's work. Um, you know, I'm just the guy at the front. Um, you know. So Neil, that's probably a good um, good segue to introduce um, the team that you're in front of. You know, sort of who introduce a little bit DBS for those who don't know um, DBS Bank, and also you know talk a little bit about your team and um, and what led you to bringing that team together and what you think makes the dynamic there quite successful, award-winning, in fact. Um, yeah, yeah it's, um, well, DBS is headquartered in Singapore. It's, it's uh, Southeast Asia's largest bank. We have 22,000 staff. We, we operate across six major geographies, Singapore, Hong Kong, Taiwan, China, India, and Indonesia. We're one of the world's most profitable banks. We did, in Singapore dollars, about um, uh, 11 billion in revenue last year, and 4.5 billion of that was profit. And our tagline is the safest bank in Asia. And of course, we all know that innovation is about taking risks. So I really kind of made it quite hard for myself. But we've got great leadership at DBS. Our CEO is a very innovative and very visionary leader. And I thought that we, we would have a chance of uh, turning this into the world's most innovative bank. I've had that mission from day one. And, and I think we're, we're, we're certainly um, in, in the top five in the world. You could argue top 10, but I'd probably say five. Uh, my team, I started with three people two and a half years ago and, you know, a desk in the middle of a consumer bank floor was not even a sign. There was no lab. There was, you know, the innovation group was, um, you know, not thought well of in the organization. And I've grown that now to 30 people. Uh, we're building a, a huge lab uh, in Singapore and we're also extending out uh, this year to, to Hong Kong and India. So we're going to have three, three facilities and three teams. My team split in two. Uh, one team's called Reinvent the Bank, and they're mainly design thinking experts, experimentation, lean startup, and they do a lot of workshops with the bank. Our model is that we never invent anything. We actually get the business to do the innovation, and we coach and support and mentor them. 
and the other half my team's called Reinvent the World. So they're the ones who built and uh, maintained a very large ecosystems we have in startups, uh, fintechs, uh, students, corporate partners, and government agencies. And essentially those teams come together, they bring people from the outside, bring people from inside, and get them to invent and deliver on the future of finance. Um, it's, uh, it's a really interesting dynamic you've got going there. David, you had a question? Go ahead. Yeah, that, that, um, that approach, you know, that, that's, that's very different, isn't it? You know, maybe this is one of the reasons you guys have been, you've been so successful is, you know, we see lots of um, innovation departments being set up in organizations trying to be the, you know, the coolest kids at school type thing in terms of we've got all the ideas, we have all the solutions, you know, it's, uh, if it doesn't come through this department, it is an innovation. Um, and actually, you know, the, the sense that I get, um, you know, both from what you're saying now and actually the last time we were, were, were speaking as well was in, we were in Nairobi, weren't we, in terms of, uh, I was saying to Simon about it, we were literally on the, the roof of a, a, a very shaky building under a, what, what, a thunderstorm like I've never seen before type of thing and we were having a very similar chat. Um, but the idea that you're there to facilitate change within the organisation, you're, you're the almost like the catalysts of innovation, aren't you, uh, which is, I think much more powerful because you're you're there to change the organisation as well as deliver innovations to, to customers, which for me is just a, it's a much better way of um, positioning these things within a bank. Um, the the other thing is, uh, and we sort of slightly glossed over it, but Steve Wozniak and Richard Branson that's that must have been kind of cool, right? So uh, you know, in terms of uh, childhood heroes, and uh, you know, they say you should never sort of meet your heroes in terms of doing it. Then, like, how was was? That must have been quite an interesting chat. Um, yeah, it was actually, I do have a funny story about this because I was meant to be doing the closing keynote for, for PayPal's new lab opening in Singapore on the Wednesday. And a week before, PayPal contacted me and said, hey, we've managed to secure Steve Wozniak and unfortunately we're going to have to cancel your session. And I said, oh, that's funny. He's off to see me, actually, at the award ceremony. Um, uh, and I'm not sure they believed me, um, but I was there anyway as a VIP and, and Steve Wozniak walked in and there was ministers and CEOs and the glitterati of Singapore, and he walked along, shook everyone's hand, and then he stopped in front of me and said, hey, you're Neil Cross, aren't you? I go, yeah, that's right. He goes, uh, he goes oh, I've been really looking forward to meeting you. Uh, here's my personal card, and uh, let's chat afterwards. And wow. uh, the look on the faces of these other executives was quite something. They, uh, and so, so, you know, the next day, uh, went to the, the competition, as I said, you know, I had to do a pitch, and they asked me a lot of questions, and I won. And, and as part of that, me and the other winners, so it's the best digital small business, uh, best venture capital raising, best social enterprise, got an hour, over an hour with him in a, in a, in a private suite. And, and just chatting through, you know, um, it got a real sense. He's got very strong moral fiber, very similar to myself, does a lot of work in charity. And um, he told me a very interesting story about how he invented Apple One, um, which, you, which you don't see in the film. Essentially... Um, at the time, to get a personal computer or any computer device to make an output on a screen, you needed a $25,000 analog to digital box. Uh, sorry, digital to analog box. TVs take, at the time, they take analog signals. Now, what he managed to do was, with $25 was manage to create a digital wave which was a bit smoother, and the TV got uh, it faked the television into believing it was an analog wave. And so it actually draw the picture on the screen. And, and so instead of a $25,000 piece of hardware, he could do it for $25 and the Apple One was born. 
amazing. And that's how personal computing started, and I thought it's a wonderful story. It is. It's amazing. You know, he he does have a real sense of uh, you know coming across like a, a a true engineer, doesn't he? Which is um, you know tantamount to a lot of the things that you sort of see him coming out and talking about. But uh, but yeah, totally amazing. Like you say, meeting your heroes, it must have been a a thrill. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I you know I'm a professional presenter, as you are, maybe not professional, but I'm certainly a presenter. I do a lot of presenting. And so, you know, I had my five-minute speech all planned, and I'd practice it, like, you know, several times. And and, and, and when they announced the award, I think I just squealed like a little girl, in fairness. And that's the first thing <laughs> that came out of my mouth was I opened up and cried. And uh, then I kind of said, you know, it's a great honor and, and reeled off a load of names. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, my whole five-minute professional speech was completely gone. And, uh, <laughs> I love that because I'm usually, as you know, you're a presenter as well. You're always so professional, and the, you know, the projector can break. You know, whatever happens, you the game carry. You know, the show must go on, and you're professional. So it's so nice that I was actually so excited that I, I, uh, I didn't act like the professional presenter I usually am, and I thought, oh, that, that was really great. And my friend came with me, and his job was to look after the award. Which is great, and he, he didn't drink or anything. My friendly old booth, and he, his job was to make sure that I actually woke up with my award this time. Um, <laughs> well, and and so, have you got that at home? Is that is that something that's sort of pride of pride on the mantelpiece, or is that uh, sitting at DBS offices? Uh, yeah, so the award you know belongs to me. It's actually sat behind my desk. It's a team award. I see it very much as a team award. And um, and I, I actually got interviewed on national television on the breakfast uh, you know show of a business here, Channel News Asia. Well, actually, it's regional television, and um, regional is in Asian. And um, you know, they said to me, "What what what makes the world's most disruptive CIO?" And I said, "Well, there's three things. One is you have to do something which is world first. And I talked about some of the work we did at DBS. I said, secondly. You have to be very humble. Uh, for example, you know my team is, is the ones that delivered this success to me. And thirdly, you have to do things in a wider context. And I talked about you know my work and my social enterprises. And, and for me, that really sums up. And that was certainly in the comments from Sir Richard Branson and Steve Wozniak as well. Those those three things. Well, I think. I think we'd love to, you know, unpack some of that uh, in a little bit in terms of some of the social things that you do, but. Um, Simon, I think we, uh, we've got uh, so many questions for you, Neil. So. Yeah, indeed. I mean, I, I love this idea of putting all of the kids in the show and, and you know, really making sure that the, um, the empowerment goes to not just the people in the bank that come up with the ideas, but also the team that help them execute it. Um, and that humility is the key to success, whereas everybody seems to want to own innovation, whereas actually nobody owning it seems to be the message here and that everybody kind of has a piece of it. Um, it's, it's really, really important. And I think on that theme, really, can you, can you give us some examples of um, things that your team have, have brought to life in the past couple of years that, you, that, that our audience might enjoy? Uh, certainly, I mean, our biggest project that we worked on was the Digibank that, that got launched in India this year. It was a project we worked on uh, probably 50% of the time uh, for, for most of last year. And, and our role there was really to uh, do transfer of skills. So we spent a lot of time with the Digibank teams they were growing. Um, doing hackathons in India, um, helping them with customer immersion, creating paper prototypes, doing the customer journeys, and running a lot of experiments for them, you know, and A-B testing. And over time, you know, as they built out their kind of innovation capability, um, you know, then they were the well-placed, and obviously they, you know, we certainly won't claim that where they did all the hard work. Um, but it was a moment of pride that we were the first mobile-only 
bank in India, so there's not even a, a you know an online banking platform. And the first bank in India, where you can you know sign up for a bank account in 90 seconds by using your thumbprint in a coffee shop. And so you never even talk to a banker, you never go to a branch, you don't send us documents. Um, it's all done electronically using EKYC and, and biometrics. And it's been very successful for us. The growth on it is, is pretty strong. And we continue to add more customer-centric things in there. So help them, you know, get transport, you know, discounts for shopping, and, and try and understand, you know, the job to be done, the journey the customer's on, and how we can, you know, be there with a friction-free contextual offering for them. Uh, I think that's certainly the certainly the, the biggest and the most significant thing we've done for the bank. Now we're currently working on at the moment uh, about 180 projects um, across the bank. Another thing I'm incredibly proud of uh, is the way that we've approached, uh, you know, getting into and and uh, uh, feeding uh, a very large ecosystem. So so DBS has never worked with fintech before. Um, we've run seven accelerators in two years. We've accelerated over 100 startups. Many of those have got funding. We're really seen as a leader in the fintech space. We've deployed um, well over 10 fintech in the bank now, either as a piece of tech or through a an agreement where we refer business to each other. And and you know the the thing we did this year, which was really legendary um, by one of my staff called Joan Chung, was she was looking at how to reinvent education in Singapore. We, we did this program called Unicorn, where we put a call out across Singapore. We went around the universities and we asked them to send us a 30 second video on how they would reinvent the world. Um, we had over 200 uh, applications. We narrowed that down to about 80 people. We put them through a kind of hackathon process with a psychologist that watched them and you know see how they perform under pressure, how they team, how they lead. We selected the um, best 18 from that. We split them up into teams, and those 18 people were focused on the four biggest challenges at the bank set by the executives. Um, we put them in a startup center, we mentored them, introduced them to all sorts of you know, coaches, and uh, they pitched back to the execs about a month ago, and actually two of the four, so 50% of those projects are now going live, and the bank uh, has offered roles for half the unicorns immediately for when they finish university. And I think that's great. I mean, that's really that's reinvented internship. I've never heard of anyone doing that before. And I just love the way that my team, you know, they they are my inspiration in, in many different ways. You know, maybe when I, you know, I come back from the weekend on Monday morning, I'm all grumpy, and, and you know, and the team are trying to tell me about their amazing work. That really inspires me then to, um, you know, to continue this, this great journey we're on. I think there's something to be said about empowering the people and giving them the permission and them feeling like they have the permission to pull something off like that as well. So there's, there's some credit due to yourself there for that clearly. But uh, I, I think there's, there's so many things you mentioned there that I just want to briefly highlight. I mean, one, EKYC with a thumbprint. Everybody's been trying to crack this forever. Not only have you done it, it's live and you're acquiring customers. That's, that's hugely significant. I think you've reinvented recruitment. And the, the other thing that really stuck with me is that you talked about having 10 fintechs that you've deployed. It's not, um, we might do a partnership with them, we might do a proof of concept. No, these are deployed and they're in production. And I think that focus is, is really what sets, sets apart what you guys have done to, to a lot of the PR that's out there. Um, and, and on that basis, really, around kind of PR and uh, things like that, are there things in fintech that you think people generally get wrong? Um, and what, what, what kind of pet peeves do you have in the fintech space? Are there any? <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, they, uh, I mean, there's a lot. As with all these things, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I don't 
calendar. I've been in IT since I was 11. And, and so, you know, the things that particularly frustrate me is these kind of instant experts, instant gurus, and hype, really. It, it, not because it, it particularly, it just makes my job more difficult. And, and so, you know, when you're trying to sift through, you know, what's available in market to work with, there's just so much hype and noise, essentially, that, it, you know, it does make my, my job a lot more, more difficult. I think that, you know, if someone wants to be an expert, like, well, you know, maybe, maybe not expert, but, you know, certainly seen as a leader in this space, like us three are here, then, you know, it takes a while to earn that. Um, and um, and so the kind of instant experts who just kind of read a few things and, and don't have the experience, you know, does create a lot of noise and also misdirection for younger players. So people who are trying to learn about the industry, not so much for people like us, we cut through, you know, we know, we understand the industry very well, we know where it's going and what's good and what isn't. I feel, uh, you know, sorry for some of the younger players who have to, Try and navigate through this noise to find the really good stuff, and the and the people who do do have a a kind of strong message through that. I think also, you know, there, there's a lot of people who are saying they're reinventing finance. Um, they're not. Yeah, fintech is basically a faster horse. So I'll just put that out there. Yeah, it's not reinventing finance. You're still doing banky stuff. You're still doing a payment. You're still getting a loan. You, see, you know, it's a uh, is this a faster horse? Um, and, and many people believe that by having a better experience, you know, that's what FinTech, you know, that really isn't a strategy in fairness because banks are getting better at building experiences. I particularly like, and another thing that peeves me is, is the lack of recognition of what's happening in Asia and especially in China. And they are doing stuff at such massive scale. I was, uh, I was fortunate enough to speak at G20. There's two G20s. Um, there's one which is going on now with the presidents, and there's one in fe in February this year, which was the finance minister. So I was invited to that. I uh, I was on stage with the chairman of WeBank, who obviously is um, uh, part of WeChat, uh, Tencent, the big big um, uh, Chinese kind of e-commerce and tech company. And um, before I got on stage with him, I was saying, you know, I really love what you did with EKYC, photographing your ID card in your face, and you know, how's the business going? He said, well, you know, it's going okay, but you know, we could do more. I said, you know, what regard? He goes, well, at the moment, we've only got 30 million customers. And, um, you know, but he goes, I hope to fix that. We're going to get some more staff. And by the end of next year, we should have about 300 million customers, um, which is obviously bigger than every single startup neobank in the world added together and probably times by about five or ten. And, um, and so, but nobody really talks about them. And they're very focused on European and U.S., startup bank models and, 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 and you know, proclaiming that they're, the most successful in the world and, and you know that's that's you know it's not that it's not true for starters i think they're doing some interesting work but i, I feel they've built the faster horse uh, whereas i feel china has you know moved on to the automobile um, i'm sure there's words like fintech 2.0 3.0 4.0 i believe fintech is like it's not even production fintech's not even in production so if it's not in production it has to be less than one i think we're on about fintech 0.4 in fairness um, and what i mean about production is it's really starting to take big parts of banks' businesses. I think that's when you can call fintech ready. Yeah, and and um, and and so you know, I know that a lot. You know, they have to market stuff and, and do stuff like that. But um, I just wish people have a wider view and uh, a, a, you know a better understanding of, of what's happening around the world in this space. 
I completely agree. I, th I think there's a, um, a, you know, on both fronts of that, really. When we um, we had a sort of recent, um, you know, APAC special, you know, the the penny of, uh, you know, somebody testing something and when they do a test, they do it with a million customers, not, uh, you know, not in a lab somewhere doing something. That's for, for Asia Pacific is just it's the scale of it is is kind of uh, immeasurable in terms of uh, just the understanding from uh, either from the Europe or from the States in terms of sort of doing things. I think the other thing I completely agree with you with regards to the the stage that we're at, you know, the um, there's lots of kind of claims of, of, of kind of being the, the biggest this and that type thing when really we're, it's it's only just emerging in terms of the, the sort of changes that we're at. And, you know, we always... Uh, pretty confident you know banks have still got everything in their their favor with regards to the customer bases the uh, the, the the investment the potential and that's sort of coming through so um you know the idea that somebody's uh, completely disrupted banking or financial services yet is uh, you know somewhat of a bit of a fallacy from uh, from from where we're seeing it anyway with the exception yeah. of course of alibaba and, and maybe tencent and wechat because of course they they are pretty much banking models um, and I think this is the point you're making, isn't it, Neil? Whereas that is actually really threatening. Well, certainly if it came out of the, the Chinese market, it, it would really. How would a normal bank compete with that kind of scale, with that kind of data, with that kind of machine learning, uh, when they've got the buy side and the sell side of any transaction? They're, those are phenomenal businesses and, and case studies kind of kind of in their own right. And, and I think that leads me to my next question, which is, you know, kind of what does excite you about fintech? Are the things that your team show you and, and you have that moment where maybe not squealing like a little girl when you win an award, but um, you, you do get that, that excitement deep inside somewhere? Uh, yeah, for, um, for me, just, just as my own kind of philosophy, I like anything which, which you know, really focuses on improving people's lives rather than overly monetizing them. And I feel that the robo is space at the moment, well, and historically, it's been very much focused. One, it's not robo. Secondly, it's not advice, uh, it's, uh, which is actually probably a peep I should have added earlier. Uh, but the, um, you know, it's kind of basically upload your portfolio by some ETFs. And uh, what I'm seeing emerging now is actually businesses which, which, and I've actually, I'm involved with one um, that I invested in called uh, Future Penny, where it's very much focused on financial health and and getting that bit right. So you know, a lot of you know, a lot of companies focus on the the physical health of their staff and try to encourage them actually to focus on the financial health because the financial health can affect the physical health. And um, most people, I think the surveys we did, eight out of 10 are unhappy with their financial position and their understanding of finance and making, I'm all about, I like to make things accessible. So you see with my innovation strategy, I made something which is very black box done by a special team of experts. And I made, I, I commoditized that and, and you know, engaged as many people in the bank as part of their journey. I want to do the same with finance and, and advice. Um, so what I'm really excited about is, is the two sides of that platform. One is the real advice. And secondly, some real robo. I've been following AI, you know, since I wrote it into a game in, you know, 1986. Um, not true AI, obviously. I only had 16K. But the, the promise of artificial intelligence in finance from the customer side, customer service side is really exciting. The fact that everyone could have a personal advisor, no matter at what financial level, all the way down to, you know, kind of emerging markets based the pyramid, you know, all the way up to the private bank, you know, as, as required. I think that really excites me when I see um, something coming out in that space that, that's, that's doing two sides. And hence, like, you know, I also invested in that. Um, 
it does it does feel like a sort of a, a stepping stone for sort of real democratization of um, financial services doesn't it in terms of uh, as you as you say if everything is available to everybody in terms of the you know the the, the best overview of uh, of what advice could be and you know there's no sort of um, uh, only if you've got a hundred thousand in the in the bank or two million under offer do you get to see these people type thing so I think that's where you know artificial intelligence will be a you know a real um, a really interesting one in terms of sort of moving it forward definitely and I think there's um, a whole bunch of stuff exciting around the AI space I was looking into recently um, FB Loaner flow which is Facebook's kind of workflow they use and they've they've really kind of opened up how their AI works and it, it truly is uh, truly quite mind-blowing and indeed we've got an episode of FinTech Insider coming up in the next few weeks uh, episode 110 um, that will be all about AI so, so definitely look out for that I, I think um, one of my last questions for you would be you know like um, really looking to your own uh, experience here um, if, if there were things that you could do if you would start over all over again what would you do differently and also what advice do you give to young people looking to get into this fintech space or, or more importantly people who just want to make a difference um, in the world of finance who might have grown up in the financial crisis and, and want to make finance a little bit better? Let's start with the, with the second one first because in fairness I forgot the first question. Uh, <laughs> 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 Sorry, uh, so the second one, let's take a broader picture actually if I'd like, can I answer the question as people would want to get into innovation and then we can talk about finance. Um, I get a lot of questions from people who want to get into innovation. They see it as a destination. You know, I want to join the innovation group. You know, I want to be an innovator. I want to, and part of that is I want to sell up my own fintech company. And and my guidance to them is, you know, why are you waiting? Um, and they say, what? You know, I said, whatever job you're in, and I talk to them and say, you know, what industry? And okay, who's the world's best in fast-moving consumer goods? Who's the person? What have they written? What's their message? Which is the best company? Um, and once you start to learn that, I remember when I started my journey, you know, I built a presentation. I had all the world's best branches, ATMs, online banking, mobile banking, risk systems, card offers. I knew what, what was best in the world. And then I started moving into, then naturally you become an innovator because then you start having conversations with people and they say, wow, well, yeah, that's really interesting. You start to see patterns forming, you know, the, the kind of... Um, the lineage of ATMs and the future of ATMs as well, then you have a view on what you think ATMs are moving towards. And, and that was what frustrates me a lot, that people feel they have to go get a job in innovation and go to a college course and be, then you can be an innovator, whereas I have no qualifications in anything. Um, you know, I'd left school when I, when I was very young. And, um, and, and so my guidance is just be really good at what you're doing now. Yeah, if you can't be world class at the job you're doing now, how do you expect to be world class at the thing you're going to move into? And um, and if you want to move into fintech, my guidance is find find some grown ups. You know, if if you're um, young and smart and good at tech, that's great. Yeah, but partner up with someone who's a bit mature, who understands finance, who can co have you know exact level conversations and has business savvy that that you know can can balance out. You've got to build a diverse diverse team. And, and so if you're a young tech guy, find an older, kind of mature, you know, bankerish executive type. If you're, if you're a banker executive type, find someone, you know, find yourself a, a young kid who's great at code and super excited. And, you know, sounds, sounds like an amazing dating website. We could probably, there's like, there's an idea forming in my head here that there's, we can, we can hook up like, you know, 
seasoned executives with young fintech startups. Like. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, certainly. <laughs> you know, that's, um, and, you know, if you want to move in, in, into finance, again, is, you know, um, it, for that kind of stuff, you tend to have to, you know, have some level of qualification. And you've got to think about where do you want to be in finance? Do you want to be in innovation? Do you want to be in sales, like a relationship manager? Do you want to be in marketing? Do you want to be in tech? And, and so there's lots of really good entry points. But again, if you're world-class in what you do now, say a world-class you know, architect, then you're going to go into a bank at a very high level and, and get remunerated in the right way and be on big important projects. Um, and, and so my thing is don't wait till tomorrow and, and start developing yourself now. Yes, I think that's amazing advice and in fact I may take that clip and send it to a few people who are starting their journey because I think that's absolutely spot on advice for life. Um, so I think um, my, my last question really would be to tell us a little bit about your orangutan sanctuary. I think this is a, an, an interesting story and something not a lot of people know about you, Neil. Yeah, thanks. Yes, um, I'm actually off there shortly. I'm just about to get on a flight into, into Sumatra. So um, I found these lovely I went orangutan trekking. I found these, you know, lovely people in this village um, with the orangutans. In this, it's only it's a 2.5 million hectare jungle, so uh, fully wild place. And uh, I loved it so much. I I, I thought I'd actually uh, start to um, build a hotel there to give people jobs and to bring more awareness around the Sumatran orangutans. Um, you know, from that it's been going on uh, nearly every weekend. Uh, during the build, I'd, I'd leave work at 5 p.m., get a flight at 7 p.m., get, you know, hour-long flight, spend four to six hours in a car, get up to the jungle about midnight, 1 a.m., uh, wake up Saturday to the noise of gibbons, monkeys jumping up and down on my roof and generally trying to steal anything off my balcony. And uh, and then, you know, obviously I'm not qualified in anything, as I, as I say, so, um, you know, I had to be architect, designer, <laughs> interior designer, and hotel operations. You know, we launched with three rooms, and we start to employ as many people as possible. Um, you know, now the hotel in the jungle is only six rooms. I have about 20 staff. You can do come and trek with the orangutans, with the elephants. Um, you can do rafting, cavings with hotel orangutan. Uh, recently, I started buying an island to protect a coral reef right up in the north of Sumatra. So I took the same team. Uh, my business partner is actually the imam, so he runs the mosque in the, in the village. And um, and we're building a dive resort to bring awareness around uh, marine conservation. I have about 30 um, construction people up there at the moment, and I'm going to continue that model. I think that's my career. And, and people laugh because they said to me, hey, Neil, we should do a fintech company. You know, you'd be really good at it. I'm like, well, all my life I've done digital things, and they've never lasted my computer. Well, you can still play my computer games, but you wouldn't want to because they're 18. <laughs> A little bit boring. Uh, so, you know, and, and I've built websites, code, I've been a developer, I've done sales. You know, there's nothing that's lasted. And I love, you know, exploring physical design and 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 giving people jobs, education, we give them healthcare. And, and just I want to continue to expand to build the biggest social enterprise change in Sumatra and bring real awareness around the mass levels of deforestation and, you know, the, the potential extinction of our closest living relative. They're, they're beautiful animals and they're beautiful people there. It looks absolutely amazing. I have to say the, the, the pictures that I uh, sort of see pop up on uh, sort of Facebook every so often in terms of both the, the sanctuary and actually the this dive center that's been created just look absolutely breathtaking. So uh, yeah, as soon as I can convince my wife to uh, travel that far with two kids, then uh, I'll be out there for sure. 
Yeah, yeah, I'd love to see you out there. I'll, I'll only charge you double. <laughs> that seems fair, that seems fair. All right, Neil, I think on that, that's a perfect place to end it. But um, listen, thank you so much for your time. I think I've thoroughly enjoyed that, and I hope our listeners will as well. Um, thank you very much for joining us. Hey, it's a great honor to be in the show with two, uh, two great you know, fintech leaders like yourself. I really feel one of the gang, even though I'm out in uh, Asia here. So thank you, I appreciate it. Well, that's it. We've come to the end of another awesome episode of Fintech Insider. Please keep those five-star reviews coming and feel free to follow us on at Fintech Insiders on Twitter. Thanks again to our guests, Mariano and Pascal from Santander, Shamir from BBVA, and of course, Neil Cross from DBS. Coming up next week, we're taking this show on the roads and we'll be coming to you live from Berlin with Solaris Bank and a selection of the other great and good from the Fintech community in Berlin. But that's all we have for you tonight. Catch you next week.